Hey everyone, it's Dave. I just want to say some stuff just before we get into the episode. Today in the episode, we talk about Infinity Sauce. The guy that does Infinity Sauce is part of the story. So, uh, I just wanted to do a quick shout out. If you guys don't know about this hot sauce, go to infinitysauces.com. Check it out. It's great stuff. Trust me. I'm only talking about this stuff on the show because I love it. If it were a garbage product, I wouldn't talk about it. It is not. It is fantastic. I used some of my food last night. It is, well, last night when I recorded this, not probably when you hear it, but y- you know how this works, right? We understand. Okay. The other thing, blackgroundcar.com. My guest today also worked at Blackground Car for a time with me. I don't think we actually touched on it in the episode, which is weird, but we had a lot to talk about. So go to blackgroundcar.com, download the app for your mobile device, call cars when you need them. You know how it works, a car service. I'm not going to say the competing car services, but you know what they are. Black Crown Car is the one to use. In the Seattle area, if you need a ride, you need a ride to the airport, you need a ride out just because you want to be responsible and you're going to do some drinking. You're going to go to a show. Whatever it is you're going to do. Maybe you just need to get to work. I don't know where you need to go. You have your own reasons for the things that you do. But what I do know is that you should use Black Crown Car to achieve your goals. That's what I'm saying. BlackCrownCar.com. Do it. Okay. We're going into the episode now. Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of I've Known You Too Long. My guest today used to play guitar for a band called Positively Negative and a band called Slick 50. And his band Positively Negative played the official premiere of my movie The Edge of Quarrel in Seattle when it first came out. And they were on the soundtrack and uh, Excursion Records put out some compilations with them on it. We've done multiple things over the years. We've worked together. My guest today is Kyle Fletcher. Hello. Did I get all that right? Yes, my favorite part, though, in the movie, our song plays during the poop scene <laughs> in the fridge. Oh, if if people haven't seen The Edge of Quarrel, well, then that, which that, would be fine. That's their problem. They need to watch it. I suppose they might. Thank you. Uh, there's a scene. There is a poop scene. Yes. And was, positively negative playing. And, you're, and you've, oh, you felt proud about oh, that. Oh, dude, it was awesome. Because all bands do it, but we took pride in poop jokes in the band. And uh, it was it was perfect. <laughs> they opened up the fridge and did their little business, and there's positively negative playing. So there's there's a scene in the movie where someone actually puts poop in chocolate ice cream in a freezer in a refrigerator at a party. Yep. And that scene is not fiction. That's actually <laughs> something that was a story that was told to me that I incorporated into my screenwriting when I was writing the script. Nice. So somewhere that happened to someone. Did anybody end up eating said ice cream? No one knows because the people who told the story about doing it left the party yeah. and they didn't know what party it was. So yeah. Now, yeah. Kyle, I've known you too long. Facebook says we've only known each other six years. Well, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I haven't been on Facebook a whole lot more than six years. I well, mean, either. No, but we met. Facebook. I think Kinko's. Is, we may have met before Kinko's, but I think that's when I. We didn't know we had. Yeah. So here's what I know about you. I was working at Kinko's. I was a delivery guy, uh, a delivery driver. And the other part of the delivery department at Kinko's was foot delivery guys that did their work. They Mm -hmm. would leave the store with a a little delivery guy bag and run out and do the stuff in the downtown core because we were right downtown Seattle. 
So I think I met you the day you started. Yeah. John Kessler, our boss, who lived in Everett. John Kessler, you say? Yes. Does he does he do something now that people would know? He makes hot sauce. He makes hot he killer makes hot sauce. Infinity sauce. We've talked about that hot sauce on the show a lot. It is killer. We wrote a jingle for him. Me and my partner in the studio, Peter Barcott. We wrote a jingle for his hot sauce on one of it. He has a YouTube like little ad that's running. It's running right now? It, it's up there. I don't If it's on YouTube, it's gonna go on the blog page for this episode. Okay, we'll see if we can find it. We did it for free. We did it for well, he sent us a bunch of hot sauce. Yeah. That that's not free. That stuff is awesome. No, but uh, I was working at Washington Mutual, and I got off the elevator, and there he is with a messenger bag. John, guess I hadn't seen him in years. I go, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm delivering stuff for Kinkos. I go, oh, you're a delivery guy. He goes, no, I'm the manager. I said, well, you need to hire somebody. Wait, wait. So this is how you got the job. So you weren't. You don't mean recently. That's how I got the job at Kinkos. <laughs> so okay. So John was our boss. Yep. At this Kinkos. And so I guess, okay, so I guess we must have been down a delivery person and you run into him. You already knew him. Oh, I knew him from Everett. I knew him. He lived at the party house in Everett down on uh, 16th and So Colby. you knew old school John Kessler. Oh, yeah. He was Johnny Boring back then. Johnny Boring. Yeah. He had a magazine called Northwest of Hell. I remember that very I, well. Yes. I was in a band at the time, The Dregs of Humanity. It was a metal band. We put an ad in his little fanzine. That only like twenty people read, so we never got any calls for anything. But was it an ad like we're the we'll play your show? No, we were looking for a singer. Nice. Yeah, we we paid him like four dollars or something like that. <laughs> hey, that went a long way back then. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you had the hookups for copies. But I continued the punk rock metal lineage in the drivers for Kinkos. In it, the was, dr- it was Derek Harn first, right? Wait, were you driving or foot? I was foot, and then I took over for you as soon because you were kind of on the way out when I started. Right, and I took over the job for Greg Anderson. I thought Derek Harn did it too. Derek Harn did it also. Oh, so there's another one in there. Okay. Yes. And, so and Ron Gardepe was the assistant manager. We <laughs> we were at a pretty phenomenal Kinkos. There's more. I've never worked at a place. I mean, I'm 47. I've never worked at a place or think i'll ever work at a place that has a group of people getting together like every two or three years every few years we get together a group of people that worked together in the 90s at a kinko's in seattle that no longer exists for about three years we were something else yeah it was it was the right time never had another job like that no and everybody jumped ship when it sold it went downhill fast yeah sorry for anybody who still works at kinko's it's not the same there is no kinko's well it's fedex kinko's or did they get rid of the Kinko name now? They have a little sign in the window that says Kinko's inside. But yeah, they bought a a incredible brand. It's like they bought Jello and then called it something else. <laughs> like, oh, we wouldn't want a, a recognizable brand name. We wouldn't want to utilize this. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, I think the home printers killed it. But it's still there. Yeah. They may have killed it, but but there there's one a few blocks from my house that I use. It's just called FedEx now. Yeah, but I remember they, when we, we had to take a class on PDFs. People will come in, it's going to cost them $7 for us to make a PDF out of something. And we're just, I'm like, what the hell is a PDF? Why would I ever want to do that? We had <laughs> meetings every month, and we would learn about this stuff. Oh, yeah. And it was, it was kind of incredible. At the time, I thought it was such a waste of time. But yes, PDFs were a big deal. Yeah. You mean they look exactly the same? Yeah. So you're putting this paper into the computer. Why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've man. already got it in my hand. 
We have a mailbox over there. Why do I need it in the computer? We have a mailbox. Why do I need it in the computer? Wait, is that is that what people would say to you? Or no, what no, you, I, that's the way you thought? I didn't work anywhere near the computers. I didn't know what I was like. Because I'd get over there and they were all Macs. Okay. I had no, no idea how to use them. Okay, so I'm a delivery driver. And who did you replace on foot? I, I don't know because the person was gone. So I was took over for John. But I think Marty might have been there. There was another person. But then the hippie took over my job. Oh, but that was after I left. Yeah. Here's what we do on the show, Kyle. We figure out the day we met, if we can. We try to get it down to a handshake. Then we go back and I try to figure out who you are and why we would have come together in a place where we would know each other. And then we go forward. Yeah, that part's easy. Finding, remembering what day it was. Well, we don't remember. Uh, I mean, the, even the year, let me think. Uh, 98? Let's see. I, was, I lived in Chicago in 96 and I moved back around the middle of 97 or near the beginning. I lived there for one year. So right about the beginning of 97. And that's when I got the job at Washington Mutual. And I don't think I was there a whole year. Yeah, about 98 makes sense. Right around 98. Just before I started making the movie. Does that sound right? Yeah, you were talking about it. I was talking about it, but I hadn't actually filmed yet. Yeah. Spring, 98. Yeah, there you go. I was writing it through the spring and summer. And you you were teaching me how when you go on a... You taught me something that's still useful today in my job. If it's a busy day or a slow day, take the exact same amount of time. And you got, I remember you got caught at the uh, bowling alley playing pool Wait tabs. a minute, wait a minute, hold on, hold on a minute now. <laughs> you're piling, you, you're piling a bunch of stuff up here. But it was good though. Some days you take three lunches, some days you get no lunches, it all balances out. That's for, for driving. Right, and I think that, that, so the idea is this, just to make sure people understand. We want to maintain, I think I probably used a Star Trek analogy too, right? It's always a hard job. Whether it's easy or hard, right? It's always a hard job. Scotty would say, I'm not sure if she can take it, Captain, but she could <laughs> always take it. So the idea was, if it's slow, you don't want to necessarily, you know, let everybody know that because if it's like, oh, these guys don't have enough to do on their job. And then more, if, if more responsibility was added to the job, that didn't take into account that we could barely handle ourselves on a busy day. Exactly. So if you had added that extra work to the busy days, we were completely screwed. God forbid the Mariners were playing an afternoon game. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, but th I think that is good advice. It kind of has that like union work slowdown kind of well, vibe to it. The other thing I remember is if you, ha if you happen to, it's so slow that you have to work in the shop. Work in the back and don't make any eye contact with customers. Everybody said, you look at them, but you look just above their forehead. Yeah, no eye contact. Yeah, you're looking forward, but you just, like, you don't see them. They're kind of giving you a look like, is he seeing me? Is he cross-eyed? I don't know what's going on. Hey, honest question. It has been 16 years since we were there. Wow. Right? 16 yeah. years. Do you miss it? It was a cool job. There is there's something to miss about it. Yeah, I mean, this, the group of people was just the right place. It's such a weird thing being, you know, Kinko's was one of my favorite jobs. Yeah, we well, we were a rocking store. Now, you mentioned me getting caught at the bowling alley playing pull tabs. Oh, yeah. So this story. That's a John Kessler favorite story. This story and this is the <laughs> legitimate version of the story, okay? Okay. So we'd be, you know, you were out on foot. I was in. I was out in the in the van or in yeah. the truck, just depending on which era it was. So I'm out in the Kinko's van, and at some point during the day, I'd have to stop for lunch. So I had a delivery 
to Ballard, which was quite a, you know, that was about mm. as far as I would go north. Was it the, the church? <laughs> I don't remember. It might have been the church. Yeah. So I get up there and there used to be this really cool bowling alley in yeah. Ballard and they had fantastic French fries. Yep. So um, I miss that place. I miss those fries, you know. Now, a, a thing of French fries for me, that's lunch. So I go in there. I'm going to have lunch at the bowling alley because I'm there. It's a place I don't get to get to very often. And I sit down and they have pull tabs. So I'm eating my fries and I'm playing pull tabs. And all of a sudden, all of these Kinko's people just come (laughs) walking out of a room, a room that I didn't know existed in this bowling alley. And I'm sitting there in a Kinko shirt with a name tag with a fry in one hand and like open pull tabs in the other and I look over and the boss from this Ballard Kinko's yeah. is like kind of looking at me like, what are you doing here? Right. And so he <laughs> walks by. They had had their store meeting in the middle of the day in, in a spare alley. room at the bowling alley, which is crazy. Right. Yeah. But also now it's like, am I doing something wrong? Like I, my, my job included stopping wherever. Yeah. Right. And if I had gotten off. So, so in my head, I'm like, I'm not doing anything wrong. Cause if I had been at the store and walked one block from the store to the little diner that had pull tabs, yeah. I would have been doing nothing wrong. Oh, yeah. So it's the same thing. But that guy called, and I don't remember his name called. I could picture his face. Called my boss, John Kessler. Yeah. Hot sauce slinger extraordinaire, That's Johnny right. Boring, <laughs> and said, you know, your employee was playing pull tabs. It was gambling on the on the clock, you know. Now, look, maybe that was the right thing for him to do. John didn't get mad, though, at all. No, no, no. But he but the next day he took me aside and said, hey, listen, you know, I know you're not. I, I can't remember what his exact words were or something like, I know you're not an idiot, but you got to know about this, like. Someone saw you playing pull tabs. And I told him the same story I just told you. Oh, yeah. And the reason why I can remember the story exactly to tell you now is because it's absolutely the truth. <laughs> oh, I, I don't doubt it. I mean, so you're eating lunch. What are you supposed to just sit there and stare yeah, at the my wall? Jo- let me tell you something. That job was stressful and hard and crazy. And there were lots and lots of days where I busted my ass. Oh, yeah. And sometimes there would be weeks where there was no like break. Right. And then sometimes oh, yeah. it would be a little bit slower and you could like have right. a little bit more chill lunch. Or to the. Your defense, John Kessler taught me the trick. Uh, we're, we're, I had to take him somewhere, and he goes, "Oh, we got to stop at Costco and get free lunch." And so we go in there and go up and down the aisles and get the snacks, and we hit everything twice. So- he had an excellent route. I did the Costco run with John one time, and he definitely could do like this this like beeline run to all the free yeah, yeah the free oh, yeah. samples. Well, I, I believe we were taking the vacuum cleaner somewhere, but he refused to take it to the Jesus vacuum cleaner place. I wasn't, that's one of the other things. He just, there's he a vacuum cleaner place down in Georgetown. They give away Bibles. And they give away Bibles and they always have like a Bible verse. I, I took the vacuum there a number of times though. Oh, he wouldn't let they me. They did good work. Oh, I'm sure they do. <laughs> Idle hands. <laughs> um, so really this will all come full circle for us when we go into a Costco together for some reason and see them giving samples of infinity sauce. There you go. That'll be crazy, right? Exactly. All right. So we met the day you started working there. Exactly. But we're connected. Talk about going back, though. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're going to go back. But we're connected how? Through the music scene. Well, yeah. Like, uh, Positively Negative was was Face First. That was the the original name. And Soto was in the band. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. You, Kate, 
you're saying that positively negative was face it first? It started out face first, and then Rich. Rich I never what? knew this yeah. until today, yeah. right now. This is crazy. And Rich, or Rich, he was in Outright, and then he joined. Okay, he joined, I think I knew that connection. Yeah. Then he joined face first, and I think it was, I can't remember exactly. I don't know. Who in positively negative was in face first? Steve Ricky, I think. Wasn't Steve Ricky in there? But that doesn't mean that positively negative just it's like it, adds a member and changes their name. No, and no, becomes, no, no. Or it, face first becomes positively negative. No, no. But it was a. Uh, let me think. Because they practice at the Jam Shacks. I can't remember. It was after I had joined that a diff- bunch of people came, came in and kind of did their thing. But Soda was in the band. I remember that in the first beginnings of what morphed into positively negative. Okay. So here's what I remember about when we started working together. You were you were saying like, oh, I'm in a hardcore band, and I'm like. And in my mind, because I didn't recognize you, mm-hmm. in my I kind of thought I knew everybody. Like, and it was dumb. Like, this is you know, like, there's those things where you go, "Oh, I'm not everything I thought I was." <laughs> so you represent for me a time when I went. You know how like lots of different groups of people have used the word hardcore. Oh yeah. The first thing I thought was, "Oh, it's one of those things, right?" I'm like, maybe he's it's going to be like hardcore electronic music, or maybe it's going to be. And so I remember going like, "Who?" Who do you play with? And I think it wasn't until you dropped Neil's name that okay. I was like, oh. And then I just realized that I had just missed any show that you guys had played and had just been out of the loop enough thinking about my own shit that I didn't know that you were another band in my scene. Well, and that's Ron Gardepe thought the same thing, too. I said, oh, you want to hear my scene? He goes, oh, yeah, sure. And he came back and he goes, that's not what I thought it was going to be. I thought you were going to be like some shitty metal band. <laughs> right. Like, well, so somehow <laughs> you guys flew under the radar and absolutely should not have. Outright, face first, that ever, like that, that should not have been something that flew under the radar. And I think there had just been weird divisions with people. I don't know what it was. I don't know why, but I felt a little bit guilty. Like after, like I realized that, like that I kind of felt like, oh, maybe I haven't been doing my work. Like maybe I don't yeah. know. We, we kind of got lazy and were underachievers. It was. <laughs> but once I figured out that you were, that it wasn't bullshit, I was like, oh, dude, you guys got to be in my movie. You yeah. got to like, let me use some for the soundtrack. I got a scene for you. I got a scene for you. <laughs> I'm, hey, I'm looking for free music. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I apologize to everyone everywhere. Um, no, but uh, I, it, I was really thrilled when, after working together with you for a couple of years, you know, I was able to have you guys play the. That was awesome. The, was yeah, it, it was, was the, the paradox, right? It was the paradox on the university, and the place was packed full. Yep. It got so rowdy, some people got kicked out during the screening of the movie. Nice. Right? Now, you guys played after the screening, right? Yeah. It, listen to this. It was it was the movie, The Edge of Quarrel, for two hours, with a bunch of people sitting in an old theater watching it. Then it was, uh, then did you guys play next, or did you headline? I don't think we headlined. Then it was positively negative, and then it was Rocky Votolato. Yeah. Playing acoustic. Wasn't there a third man? I think that was it. Contingent didn't play? Sorry. Did, did Contingent play that night? It's, I would... We, we played a okay. lot of shows there. And it's, it's, if... They, I remember watching the movie, and I, I remember Rocky Vallado, but uh, I said I totally butchered his name. Votolato. Votolato. It's a all O sounds. Yes. Yeah, I apologize. I, I, do, I do a podcast called The Token Asian with a guy that's known Rocky for decades and he says votolato so oh. it's it's a votolato what are you gonna do i'll just say rocky that's perfect <laughs> no I, I if contingent played it i feel really bad because i remember the flyers that just said positively negative and rocky votolato i i can't remember because 
we played so many shows there, and it was usually us with them. And it was a fantastic know. venue. But uh, that really was a great place for shows. It was. It was awesome. And then it, when it moved to the uh, the place in Ballard. Oh, the place in Ballard? You yeah. mean when it moved to Mars Hill Church in Ballard? I, was, I wasn't going to speak its name. But <laughs> I have to like say. It's almost like it doesn't exist anymore. I have to say, one of the greatest shows, I, local shows I ever saw was at the Mars Hill. And it was uh, Abraham Lincoln Killing Machine. Abraham Lincoln Killing Machine show at the Mars Hill Church in the main room, the big room. You were there for that, right? Was one of the greatest spectacles that anyone has ever seen. Uh, it was to- total chaos. Shut down by the fire department. Shut down by the fire department in a church. Oh, there's a picture. It wasn't like it was a little hall or a house show. This is a full-blown church and the fire department. I have I have the picture somewhere. It's on one of my hard drives. And it's a picture. It's kind of like a weird like circle pit thing going, but it's a big space. And there's one kid running, like turned sideways, pushing a shopping cart. A shopping cart. With another person in it. In the middle of the pit is a guy standing there. With his pants down yeah. and his underwear, just standing there, and there's burning toilet paper. There's probably stuff. fireworks and toilet paper <laughs> going off. <laughs> Naked people, shopping cart. Like it, there. It's. I've seen a lot of crazy shit in my life. It was, but hilarious. I've rarely seen anything like that. And the show started, so Abraham Lincoln Killing Machine was going to play. They only played however many shows. They asked Greg Bennett to dress up as Abe Lincoln yes. and give an address to the crowd before they played. And then what they didn't tell Greg is that they were going to have Tim get up on stage behind him while he was giving the address and play one of Trial's songs. Trial was completely broken up oh, at yeah. the time and they had not done reunion. And those two, I don't even think, had really been much in contact with each other. So Greg, in costume as Abraham Lincoln, is is doing this crazy person address. And then when it gets done, this Trial song starts and the band knows it. And Greg turns around and sees Tim smiling. And just launches right into it, like doesn't miss a beat. That's awesome. I'm standing next to Matt Weltner, who sang for The Answer. Good friend of mine. He's standing right next to me. He looks at me with this crazy look on his face, takes his glasses off and just kind of pushes them against me. And I don't know what he's doing. They fall to the floor and he just runs. He just like basically essentially tossed his glasses and ran for the stage. So I pick him up and held him for him. But the place went insane. And then they started playing and it was... It was chaos, like until it was shut down by the fire department. Actually, you know what? I think my band opened up that show, Everything in Ruins. Everything in Ruins? Yeah, I think uh, I'm fifty percent sure. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure we because we only played there once, and I think it was that show. All right, I had to take a little break to shush the dog. All right, you were saying that your band, uh, Everything in Ruins. I think we played that show. Okay, who was in that band? It was me and Nick Provo, who was in Positivity Negative, and uh, Ian. He was in a couple other bands with those guys, and uh, Eric Fry. He was a singer. It was very different. He was he was a uh, he wanted to sound like the Afghan wigs, but a little heavier. So it was something. That's compl- not a bad idea. No, it was something a, a lot very different. But that all broke up because they were the other three became flaky. But that's how bands work. Because <laughs> the other three became flaky? Yeah. Three out of the four people you just mentioned? Yes. <laughs> Yourself included? I wasn't flaky. <laughs> okay, yes. So that show was phenomenal. Uh, there ended up being an Abraham Lincoln Killing Machine CD on Excursion, but I didn't put it out, which is a weird thing. Well, they brought me a demo that they recorded and wanted me to mix it. This right. is back when I was in the basement of my house in U District. I didn't know what really what I was doing. I was still in I think I was still in school. And uh 
I did some mixing and I did an edit of one. One of the songs was an instrumental and uh, we put the, the clip from the Big Lebowski and it just kept saying, this is what happens when you fuck another man in the ass. And it just, <laughs> that went, went through the whole song and the singer, I can't remember his name, but he thought when it you was, fuck a stranger in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> See what happens? Is it t- Billy? See it's Billy? <laughs> this is what happens when you fuck another man in the ass. Not my car. But it was just looping for like a four-minute instrumental. Right. I don't know whatever they happened. Had the, of it. It's a song called "The Falconer." Oh yes. They had to, they had a bunch of they had a bunch Hooray, of cocaine. <laughs> they were insane. And someone said, "I want to release this on excursion." And I said, "I'm not. I, I'm not. <laughs> I don't think that fits. I wasn't available like to do it." Yeah. That's the thing, though. It was cool enough, and it was people I liked. Yeah. You know. Um, and he was like, oh, no, I'll pay for everything. And I said, okay, here's the excursion logo, basically, is when it happened. Nice. So um, I have no idea how far that made it, if anyone's ever, ever actually heard it very much. there was a, It came in at a weird time. I don't think I ever saw the finished product. Well, There's one around here. I'll show well, you. when we moved the studio out to past, uh, where is it, out Duval, where Sean lives, the guy that owns the studio with me. We had Neil come out there to, uh, sorry, I'm going to embarrass Neil Steele here. We had him come out to do vocals, and it was basically a basement, and the closet was where the board and stuff was, and Neil was in the other room, and he had a, a couple sarsaparillas in him, and there was a big garbage can full of, like, old bottles and stuff in there, and we hear this, uh, uh, we hear, we come in there, and he, the mic fell over in that can, the whole can fell over, and he fell, and we had a backdrop behind him, it all fell over, like, maybe we'll have to do the vocals next time. Wait, you weren't able to just set it back up? Well, he, was, he wasn't he uh, was prepared to do any vocals. Oh. They were oh. trying to add it to a bad demo. I, I think they might have re-recorded a bunch of it some, elsewhere eventually, but... <laughs> So you're saying is that band was chaos at all times? All times. Nice. We played we played a house party with them. Tacoma? No, it was uh it was somewhere in the U district. Okay. On the west side of the freeway, but I remember they lit some uh toilet paper on fire in there and it like something happened it sucked the air out of the room cuz somebody hit a fire extinguisher at the same time and we're all and it was a li- and nobody can see this room here, but it was about this wide and maybe t- six feet longer, this room we're in. And it just, all of a sudden, it just, <laughs> and the room, was, there was like bits of fire everywhere and people just freaked out and people <laughs> running for the doors. And Neil was wearing a loincloth. That's all he was wearing. I remember that. <laughs> so they were good. So listen. Their shows were epic. It was awesome. You came from somewhere. Everett. You came from Everett. Yep. So we're going to go back and figure you out, figure out why it is when we ended up working in the same random business in downtown Seattle, we had this shared history that we were able to then build off of. All right. How far back are we going? Where were you born? I was born in Seattle, Swedish. And then I guess my dad owned a, uh, a little uh, like hamburger stand on uh, First Avenue downtown called the Curly Cone. This is like when I was born, like in 69. And uh, then kindergarten, I lived in uh, Cheney, just outside of Spokane. Okay, so you guys moved around a little bit. Did, did he close his... Uh, yeah. He closed his, his hamburger he said, stand? He said when they uh, made uh, the pinball machines that gave out money, when they Ill- made it illegal, it drove his business. It pretty much shut him down. So he was running a business that was staying open based on the idea that pinball machines were paying out money. Well, yeah, because all the little... 
uh, restaurants and the you know it was a little greasy spoon type of thing. But people come in there and play those pinball machines and you win quarters. And he said it was a CD group of people and stuff. But you know it was cool. But once those pinball machines were, were gone, it kind of the whole area changed. They were so trying to, that's they're trying to get rid of the when the we were when we were old enough to play pinball. They always had those signs that said for amusement only on them. Yeah, because they had made them illegal. Yep. Payout. I've never seen a payout pinball machine. Me, me neither. But yeah, he said you could uh, you play and you could get your court get a quarterback or you get two back. Or, I don't know how it worked. Instead of free balls. But I can't remember who. Uh, it was a politician that's still around. Gordon. His last name. He hasn't been going. Gordon. Slade Gordon. Slade Gordon. My dad to this day hates Slade Gordon because he he was a young up and comer that made <laughs> that passed that law. He screwed your dad out of his business. Yep. Your dad. Is like the Seattle equivalent of like Times Square porno booth operators who got. (laughs) My dad hates two people. He hates Slade Gordon and Danny fucking K. (laughs) Danny K? He hates Danny K. I don't know. Who is that? You never heard of Danny K? He's kind of back in the uh, 40s and 50s, kind of like a poor man Frank Sinatra. From here? No, no. He's an actor. Oh. He's an actor, made, you know, just cheesy musicals. No, I don't. Never heard of Danny K. Is it K K A Y? Yeah. Well, I'm gonna have to try to find a clip to put uh, up on the vlog page. Nothing special about Danny K. Nothing. He he just hated him. Did they have a per? Was it personal? No, I don't know. I just remember as a kid, my dad. Oh, I hate Danny K. I don't know why. Wow, dude, there was probably drama. Your dad and Danny. I don't K. think my dad ever met Danny K. <laughs> I thought for sure you were gonna say Slade Gordon and Obama. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, so you you were born in Seattle. Were you guys living in Seattle at the time? I believe so. And then, you, but that's like you know when I was you know before I was two. Before you really remember. Yeah. And, and then, then, how old were you when you went to Cheney? I I remember living in Linwood for a year or two, and then we went to Cheney for kindergarten. You started school in Cheney. Yep. And where's Cheney in the it's state? It's just uh, just uh like I'm gonna say twenty miles west of Spokane. It's where uh Eastern is. Okay. So I went, I actually went to kindergarten at Eastern. They had like a, a, the kindergarten was taught by the doctors and the upcoming students there. It was like, oh. a, it was like a, some sort of, it was some like, sort of commie liberal yeah, crap like, out exactly. in Eastern Washington. Exactly. It's kind of new age. And my parents, I guess there, used, there was a big, I remember there was a big mirror on the wall. My parents said it was a one way mirror so they could come in and watch. Oh. Uh, yeah. It was like half a block from, anyway. some dystopian future stuff, man. Yeah. They were so they were watching your progress. Well, they could come in and see the kids. You know, I don't know. I remember my teacher was Doctor Rich, this lady. But then I started first grade in uh, Doctor Rich, and it's yeah, a lady. Yeah, that was her last name. That was okay. her last name. It's fragmented memories. But uh, <laughs> and then I then first grade all the way through high school and Everett. Okay, so you were North only Everett. in this. They tell you it was kindergarten, but you were in some sort of strange hippie compound program. Yeah, where they were testing you and watching you at the to... age when you would... Were there other children? Yes. You remember kindergarten with other children? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And did you do all the normal stuff, lay down on the rug for nap time? Oh, yes, and have building blocks and all kinds of stuff. Okay, so interesting. Do you know where those other kids went? It's funny enough. My best friend there was named Tony True Love. And fast forward to, I think I was 20, and we had a friend that was going to school at uh, Wazoo. And me and my buddy Dave went over to visit him. It was a game, it was a football game playing that, and uh, I somehow this came up that I had a friend named Tony True Love, and he goes, "I know a Tony True Love. He goes to school here." And he came over, and it was him, and he was way into Iron Maiden, and that was 
I was full hundred percent Iron Maiden at the time. Huge Iron Maiden fans. Yeah. So some dude, it was it was weird. So the programming didn't work. Obviously, they weren't. Or, pro- they weren't trying to make us Iron Maiden fans. Or it did work. In order to really know, you'd have to know about all the other kids that were in that experiment you were in. <laughs> okay, so no. after the experiment ends, they take you back to, to Everett. To Everett, and you're in Everett all the <laughs> I, way through. I think that was the real experiment that they're putting me in. It's making me <laughs> grow well, up in Everett. Maybe, we, <laughs> yes. maybe what they wanted to see is: is there something we can do? To make these Everett kids work. Like, can we give them some sort of initial training? Like, no. Steep them in Iron Maiden and in kindergarten to give them enough strength to make it through public school in Everett. No. Well, it was it was worth a shot. You turned out all right. Yeah. You're an adult. Eventually. With a business and a, and a wife and a child. I, I mean, you're, you know. It took a while. But, you know, maybe. Well, I don't know. I was a pretty much a full-on slacker until about 22. Then I realized, eh. Need to shape up. All right, so <laughs> let's talk about that. What do you remember from grades? What What was moving? What was leaving the kindergarten and coming to Everett like for you? Do you remember anything about that? I don't. I remember when we first moved here, though. We're buying a house, but it wasn't going to close for a few months, so we lived in Little Chicago. You know what that is? It's behind the Everett Mall. No, it's like uh, affordable housing apartments. It's notorious. I didn't is realize it's still it at the... called Little Chicago. Well, we used to call it that. <laughs> But I didn't know it at the time until we're out of there. My parents were like, oh, yeah, that was, it was an interesting place. Did you see anything crazy go down? I don't remember seeing anything crazy. But no, but then I had a brother. I still have a brother. He's seven years older. And his listening to music is what got me really into music, though. At, was, that, was, at that time in grade school? It was, I distinctly remember, see, the third, I think it's third grade. My brother, we're in the Volkswagen bus mm-hmm. driving, and my brother's got this package, and it's from the Columbia Record and Tape Club. And it's oh. all of his albums. He starts flipping so them he, through. So he clicked, he checked uh, out of the magazine or the comic or whatever. He checked everything he wanted for a penny. Yep. He got like 13. 13 albums. And he did he get them in, on vinyl or in cassette? Oh, yeah, this is vinyl. Oh, this is vinyl. Okay. Oh, yeah. And so he's flipping through them, and then the album, I remember seeing the album come up, and it was Destroyer by Kiss. Oh. And third grade, Kyle's just like, what's that? Right, so you... And eventually he ended up giving me the record because I kept wanting to hear it. And so I became, from about third grade to about seventh, I was a rabid Kiss fan. My my dad took me to see him. He wasn't, a, he's not a big music fan, but he took me to see Kiss in fourth grade. Oh, wow. And Cheap Trick opened up for him. It was the Live <laughs> at Budokan tour. Mm-hmm. And then I got to see them in sixth grade for, with a band called The Rockets. And then about... You're covering a lot of ground here. Oh, yeah, but there, not much happened in between there. It was all music. I I, I was going to be... Ace Freely when I grew up. That was your goal. And said, there already is an Ace Freely. No, no. Oh, you thought you were... I'm okay, going you to didn't be, want to be like him. I want to be Ace Freely. You wanted to do something to Ace Freely and take his place. <laughs> or when he died, you would be the new... Like a member of Menudo. I like remember... You would just come in and... I remember about fifth grade thinking several times like... Maybe if I get cancer, because that's a wake, make a wish foundation thing, and it freely yeah, will come. You're see not me. supposed to wish for <laughs> cancer. That's not how make a wish meet, works. I wanted to meet Ace Freely. <laughs> you wanted to meet Ace Freely so bad you wanted cancer. <laughs> I'm fifth grade. I didn't know any better. <laughs> I'll take a pill and get rid of it. Then now hold on. Now hold on. He was my hero. But about eighth grade, seventh grade, I started realizing eh, it's not the best music in the world. <laughs> okay, hold, wait, 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 wait. I like this this um 
that you have this memory of seeing your brother flip through the records and seeing that Kiss clearly. Destroyer was in there. And do you remember the other records? Can you give us like a flip by flip? Oh, there's got to be like a Ted Nugent record in there. Because uh, I knew what all the records he had. Because when he was gone, I'd go steal all of his records and play them. Mm-hmm. And root through all his, you know, just me and my friends would go in his room and go through all the stuff. But I was all about it. He didn't want me playing his records. And so therefore, I need to play those records. I sure. what's on them. I mean, he had like Van Halen one in there. Nice. Okay. That, well, so so uh, really what you were drawn to was the the makeup oh, and, the, and the cartoonish kind of. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Because those are good. Well, I hate to say anything positive about Nugent, but you know, come on. 70s oh, yeah, Nugent. Yeah. I and, refer and to Van him Halen now. one is, oh, I love that record. But come Nugent, on. I refer to him now as America's favorite pedophile. Sure. He's a piece of crap. Well, we don't need to go on. Let's not tangent this to Nugent. He doesn't deserve it. <laughs> Nugent. But my... Uh, uh, it's my... okay. Ian MacKay has spoken highly of Ted Nugent. You can get away with a oh, little yeah. bit of 70s Nugent love. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had I bought every Kiss poster I could get. And I even had, like, the tour books. And one day for my birthday, my parent, my brother and my mom covered an entire wall in my bedroom. It was... There wasn't a space left. But they... I remember even being a little mad, but I didn't say anything as a kid. They ripped my tour books apart and took the pictures out and, you know, taped them to the wall. So they thought they were doing you a favor, but they destroyed your tour. The tour book I wanted to keep. Right. But, but my, my grandparents used to have to sleep in my room when they came over and stayed. (laughs) And my, my grandpa's like, it's like I'm being attacked by the circus. I don't know what, he he did not understand any of that. And he was never going to understand any of that. I still, I still tripped out by the idea of taking your tour book apart and putting it on the wall. It's like, our son loves Superman. So we took this action comics comic book that he had and we cut all the pictures and put them on the wall. But, But like I said, it was a wall this big and it was from corner to corner, corner. And it this wasn't big, one space. It was I realize that the podcast audience can't see the wall you're pointing yeah, yeah. at or the or the <laughs> movement of your hands. But he's talking about a wall that is, you know, standard wall height by uh, what is this? Fifteen 10? feet, maybe at least. Well, it it was a it was a good sized room. Twelve. Twelve feet. Okay, whatever. But it was it was <laughs> which is super cool. It was the kiss wall, which is super cool. I used to do that with skateboarding pictures in high <laughs> school, and I had I had a room that had every available space that would just yep. skate photos. But still, if someone had come in. And taken my skate magazines that I had not cut up for that purpose, yeah. and decided to do it for me, I probably would have lost my damn mind. I was mad, but I didn't. I wasn't going to cause well, a beef about it. You're a nice kid, but I still remember it. It's like I wish, you know. But I got over it. I, I got over Kiss. You got but, over Kiss in the eighth grade. You said. Yeah, about seventh eighth grade is when I realized uh, I was still kind of trying to cling to it. But yeah. I, now, now hold on. So you're a kid in grade school, mm-hmm. in. You're going to start 74, 75. So you're coming up pre before 80. You're in grade school. You've got an older brother who is exposing you to music, doing his job as an older oh, yeah. brother. Any other family members? Oh, mom and dad. That's mom, mom and dad. Yeah, just the four of us. Uh, what kind of... Uh, I want to know the environment that you lived in. Like, did you take a bus to school or did you walk to school? I walked. You walked All the way through high school. How far was it to well, grade school? Grade school. We're, we're grade school now. Three quarters of a mile. Long when you're that age. Yeah. But with, there's a whole bunch of kids that lived in the same neighborhood. We all went through high school together, and we'd all walk together and walk back. Neighborhood kids. Oh, yeah. That you knew your whole life. Well, up through school. Yeah. But most of them went, I kind of went the metal route and listened to alternative music, so we kind of parted ways right when it started getting around high school. Sure. That makes sense. But these were kids you knew. I mean, you guys oh, yeah. probably played neighborhood games. Oh, yeah. All of them. Were, they, were you mostly friendly, or were there enemies in there? Eh, a few enemies there, here did, and there. Did you fight? 
No, I never fought. You were not ever a fighter? No. What? So what? So if you were, if it was the weekend, grade school, but like fourth or fifth grade where you could still get out and move around a little bit and do something, right? Yeah. What would you be doing with these kids? Like in grade school? Yeah. Oh, we were out, well, we lived right near Grand Park. Uh-huh. And there was this big bank that went down to the train tracks, and we had forts and stuff down there. We'd be down there. And... Oh, so you guys were down by the train tracks building forts in the woods and shit. Oh, yeah. And jumping on trains and yeah, throwing, oh. throwing rocks at trains. Wait, wait, wait. You, were, you would actually hop trains? Oh, yeah. Did you know anyone that got run over? No. See? We all, we, when the train started moving, we all jump off and tuck and roll. <laughs> Are you telling me that there was a time in this country when possibly dozens of unaccompanied grade school age children could run around by a train and jump on it and throw rocks at it and like probably hit each other with sticks and like fall and and you somehow all lived and grew up mostly <laughs> weird weird yeah man i wonder yeah i wonder yeah. what having an entire generation of kids who have no idea that that's possible is going to be like well like my buddy ward his dad's a doctor he says kids gotta eat dirt <laughs> they gotta eat a little dirt. <laughs> gotta eat dirt. Ward, who worked with us at Kinkos. Yeah, he was supposed to be here filming this. I but wish he, he was here. I haven't seen Ward for a long time, and he's a he's a, a true hero of mine. No, yeah, I think it was eighth grade that I went and saw Sammy Hagar. Wait, are you telling? Are you gonna tell me that Hagar took you off? Kiss? It's my stepping stone because my brother listened. Are to you him. trying to avoid something? Because I wasn't. Because I'm still talking about being a little kid. No, no. You want to you, you keep me from hitting on something? Me as a kid, up to about eighth grade, it was all about Kiss. It was all about and Kiss. And being a rock star. I okay. was going to be Ace Freely. I was going to be on stage. Did you put makeup on your face? Oh, yeah. It was... <laughs> we had friends. We would all dress up. And I had a little, I had a, uh, my parents bought me a, one of those little Sears. It was a, a, a Glenn Campbell drum set. And of course, I made a Kiss logo and taped it right on the front. I wasn't going to have no Glenn Campbell. <laughs> But I did nice. start getting into Cheap Trick because I saw them open. and like, oh, there's another band. Oh, and, was, and that so was the that. first show you ever went to? Yeah. And you were how old? Fourth grade. Fourth grade, and your dad took you. Yep. And you took were... me and two friends. No, Not... no, no. That time it was just me and him. But the second time, I got to bring two friends. Where was it? Uh, Seattle Center, or the Coliseum. The Coliseum. Okay. And what do you remember? Do you remember having to wait a long time oh, for it to start? Dude, I remember being out in a line with, you know, just thousands and thousands of people way bigger than me and just being like this it was like christmas and the fourth of july what time of year was it was it cold or was it hot i don't think it was hot because i was just wearing a t-shirt i was wearing my kiss shirt okay that's probably one of those yellow ones with like the iron on rainbow kiss letters (laughs) now obviously your parents weren't worried that kiss was satanic no but a lot of people were yeah I had friends say, oh, it's kids in Satan's service. Yes. Like, no, it's kiss. <laughs> like, I never yeah, but everything stands for something. Yeah. We have to somehow. It's music. We've got to start incorporating fear into everyone's lives all the time. Oh, yeah. All right. So you went to that show. Uh, what do you, like, this is the first time you saw people play live music on a stage? Oh, yeah. And did you have impressions from that? Were you like, I am going to do that? Oh, dude, it just made it even more. That... <laughs> that is awesome. It was just, and of course, um, the Kiss concert, it's just like, when they did the reunion tour, I went to the reunion, and I brought a friend who hated Kiss and everything. I got, I'm going to buy you a ticket because I want you to see this thing. And he, afterwards, he goes, it's the most professional thing I've ever seen in my life. Because it's just, it's every cliche thing you think they're going to do, they do it. It's all, <laughs> I mean, and the, and when you get older, you realize it's all staged, you know, everything's just, yeah. I, I read a, a 
biography of H. Freely recently. It's actually a pretty good read. He talked right about that time when I was into him. It kind of bums me out. He goes, that's when Everyday and Kiss was a chore. He goes, the rock and roll part was gone. You couldn't go up there and just, you know, do your thing. You had to be in this spot at this time. You had to be doing this at this time. You had to do this and this. And he said, you know, that's rock and roll. Yeah. That's reality. But Kyle, fourth grade Kyle wasn't, th- you know, thinking about reality. I was picturing myself up there. Sure. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. So that that's cool. I always like to know about, I mean, that clearly had a big influence on you. Oh, yeah. Um. Okay. And so you weren't a troublemaker. You were just kind of like a mm. average kid in the neighborhood. Yeah. About high school, I kind of became a little bit of a troublemaker. A little bit of a troublemaker. Well, let's go. Let's do junior high. Junior high. Because you said that's about the time when things change, right? Yeah, I started listening. Oh, tell me. This is something I want to know, especially since, you know, the new movie has been out. Uh, and this seems to be, for people our age, this is kind of a big, big moment. Uh, Star Wars? Oh, yeah. Do you remember going when it oh, was absolutely. first out? Absolutely. My brother was forced to take me to see Star Wars. It was like the week it opened. Before it oh, you huge. went like first week. Oh yeah, so we did. We're just. Like, oh, Do you remember seeing thing. the advertisements on TV? Yeah, and, and was, being like, "Oh, what? What yeah, is this? I want to see that." Yeah, yeah. And my brother wanted to go, but he didn't want to take his brother. But he had to take his brother. That's probably the only movie I've probably ever seen with my brother. Oh yes. <laughs> well, that's a ni- that's nice. That's a nice memory. But I remember Empire Strikes Back much more clearly. Oh. You were probably what fourth, fifth grade. Yeah, and I was. I was like 10th in line at the Everett Theater, and we sat out there for eight hours. We got there first, and we got interviewed in the Everett Herald, waiting to see it. <laughs> waiting to see Empire. So yeah. uh, did you know what you were getting into, like, when you went into that movie? Had you heard anything about no. So how did you react? Like, I thought it was awesome. It was the greatest thing I ever saw. Aram told the story on this podcast about how he cried when Han Solo got frozen. <laughs> like, it made a huge scene and had to be taken from the theater, and then- <laughs> They took him back again, and he knew it was going to happen, and the same thing happened again. <laughs> you know, he's a bit younger, a little bit younger than us, but yeah. at the time, he would have been, it would have been really, like, impactful, you know? It was his favorite oh, yeah. guy. <laughs> and then Return of the Jedi, I saw that at the Everett Mall, and we waited about three or four hours to get in. And me and my fr- we got in, like, the last Your people. Your junior high at that point. Yeah, and we didn't get to sit next to each other, because it was so packed. It was oh, just wow. Sold out. That one, I was like, it was awesome, until the... The Furbies came out. <laughs> Till the Ewoks? Yeah. It, I know that's a big contention. It's just, uh, it was just too... I just wish they would have made the Ewoks what they would have had to actually be. Because this is something that, that Matt and I talk about on his show sometimes, is that the Ewoks actually are like little murderers. I mean, yeah. they eat human beings. Yeah. Like they are, they're little tribal. They've got sharp claws. They they sharpen sticks. They have like primitive weapons. They put them on the spit. They put them, yeah, they they <laughs> were going. And until until they believed that C-3PO was a god with powers, they were going to eat all of the main characters. They aren't, they're cute. They but, should have ate Han Solo. Yeah, I see. If you could have made the movie a little more realistic, you could have seen a little more Ewok murder. And then that would have made them cool. No one would be like, yeah, those cute, stupid little bears. If they had actually, if you'd actually seen like scenes of them with like bloody meat hanging from their teeth, like chewing up a body, that would have been awesome. <laughs> Sam Raimi should have directed it. <laughs> That's my version. <laughs> There'd be an Ewok spinoff movie where they're just, go. they're vicious. Well, Harrison Ford wanted to be, he, he thought they were supposed to should have killed Han Solo in uh, Empire Strikes Back. In Empire or, or Jedi? No, it was Empire. Oh, really? He wanted them to. But <sighs> what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, spoilers. But I you like saw it. the new movie, right? I did. Okay. We, we don't, I, yeah. I have. Most I have, people have probably seen it by now. I have comments, but we don't need to go there. 
Oh, okay. We, we, this isn't a Star Wars no, movie no, episode. No. Uh, I enjoyed it. Whatever. I liked it. Okay. So th- that, for people our age, that was a really, really big deal. Oh, right? yeah. And there were a lot of actually incredibly cool movies. Were you a kid that got to go see horror movies? Oh, my parents took me to the drive-in to see The Shining. Oh. They, they swear they don't remember it, but I remember being in the back of the Volkswagen bus looking up and it was kind of like, ooh. <laughs> it's still one of my favorite horror movies, though. Yeah? It's just, it's good. It's just it's cool. It's creepy. I like everything Stanley Kubrick's done, though. Right. Like Dr. Strangelove. That's one of my favorite, top five favorite movies. And did you probably. like that when you were a kid? No. I never saw it. My parents, they're like, oh, I don't know about that movie. I like that movie a lot. It's really well done. Um, What about other, like, stuff like Phantasm? And Fan- fr- all the like slasher movies. Yeah, everybody got too. excited for Phantasm. It didn't do it for me. The the, mo- oh, uh, the, the movie, the other movie that I remember seeing at the theater that really I was just like was Terminator, the first one. Oh yeah, I'd never seen anything like that. Nobody had. It's incredible. And it's like when the he pu- first Terminator is awesome oh, when movie. He, when he pulls out the book and starts, to, oh, he's going to kill every Sarah Connor. That's just like <laughs> that's like, you know, it's not on a mission. It's not just the Terminator robot at the end. It's every little part of that movie that is awesome. Oh, the, yeah. There's stuff in that movie that I still refer to when I, because I write screenplays, right? I'm talking yeah. to people. I love when they're asking questions about the time travel. He's like, I don't know. I'm not a tech. Like, they just yeah. got around so many problems yeah. with stuff like that in oh, the writing, yeah. but I love it. But it's just, the, it worked. That kind of thing worked. But up to that point, the, the scene in the movie that got me was when he's, he looks and he knocks on the, are you Sarah Connor? And you're like, he's not going to. You know, just, Boom, yeah, kills her. Yep. Then he's moving on to the next one. Yeah, and just just <laughs> loaded the gun at the counter at the gun shop and shot the guy. Yeah. yeah. Comes into the police station and just takes them all out. It's just a great movie. Well, with the classic line, I'll oh, be back. Yeah. <laughs> the governor. <laughs> so, yes, that was a... I, I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it on HBO or, or a movie rental, you know, a little bit later when it came out, but... No, I saw it in the theater, and we were just like, awesome. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Oh, that's lucky. I wish I'd seen it in the theater. Okay, so junior high, you start breaking away from Kiss, and it's... What did you say it was that pulled you out? Hagar? Well, I, was like, I started listening to like the Scorpions, and Sammy mm-hmm. Hagar, and then uh, I think it was about my freshman year. That's when I heard, saw... Uh, it was eighth grade. I'm trying to remember the eighth or ninth grade. My best friend Chuck, he went with me and my parents to Disneyland and we're staying in a hotel I remember this very clearly and me and Chuck are in this bed and they're in the other bed and it was MTV I've never seen MTV before and it was the the video for Number of the Beast and me and Chuck are just like <laughs> wow that is awesome my parents are like mm. they didn't care right they Whatever. weren't worried, but you guys were just like blown away yeah that, then I got in them like Juice Priest and stuff and then I started listening to like Dead Kennedys so you how do you make the jump from Iron Maiden and Judas Priest to Dead Kennedys. The group I hung around with, we all listened, they, everybody listened to metal, and then a lot of them listened to like a... And these are people you hung around with in school? Oh, yeah. These weren't neighborhood kids? Yes. I went I went to school with some of them, but it was the North Everett group that I kind of gravitated and towards. And how, how did you find those people? Some of them I went to grade school with, and then, you know, when you get older, you start, you know, going your ways, and then you meet new people, you know, mm-hmm. in the path that you went on. And so my friends lived across the street from the high school, and I had a lot of friends who were really, you know, into Dead Kennedys and Black Flag, and then like Skinny Puppy and all. Oh yeah, I'd, Skinny Sk- Puppy. Skinny Puppy never did it for That's me. Okay. That's okay, did it for one. me. But but here's the thing though: there were music videos for Iron Maiden 
There were metal kids that listened to Judas Priest. These things were in the culture and they were more understood. They were major label bands that were yeah. doing big tours. There was oh, yeah. money in it. So oh, they yeah. were, you know, they had the promotion. They were, ma- they were the fake alternative mainstream culture, yeah. right? Metal. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, I mean, it is real in its own way, but it's, it's not like they were still in the same uh, commercial aspect. Yeah. Yeah. You say Dead Kennedys and Black Flag. Now you're talking about real underground hardcore coming from not on major labels, coming from nowhere stuff. When I liked it when I heard it, I was like, but who in your group made you all make that jump to that? Because that's a jump. Like it, it wasn't though. It was like a blend. Everybody felt like it just really. So your group just and that's that's got to be an Everett thing. Oh yeah, and people listen to a lot of different. Like I remember. Like the guy that I do, I write with now, we do music licensing at the studio. Mm-hmm. My buddy Pete Barcott, I went to high school with him. He was a grade younger than me, and I remember there goes a sophomore. He was a freshman, and I come. It was in gym, and there's Pete standing with his boombox, uh, in in the gym, and he goes, Kyle, Kyle, I me mean, was me and Chris Nelson said, come over here and listen to this, and he played, and it was he had just picked up Ride the Lightning. It just came oh, out, yeah. and he played uh, Fight Fire with Fire, and I listened to him going. Holy shit. Wait, no. I had heard something a little bit from Metallica before, mm-hmm. but it didn't sound anything like that. And they were just, and that's when... And this is prior to you listening to Dead Kennedys no, or... No, that's when I had, had started listening to punk music. So kids were just bringing, bringing cassettes of anything to get a hold of and well, just playing it for people in the halls. Well, I had friends... Well, that's the only guy that ever played for something for me in the hall. And I'm just like... Me and Chris Nelson were just like, holy shit, that's fast. That... Because that, that was like... For me, that was like kind of a cross between the two. I mean, uh, I like Maiden, but this was thrash that was kind of, you know, a little more uh, ramshackle. But it was was tight, but it was just, this isn't radio. You're not going to see this on the radio You're not or hear this, and you're not going to see this on MTV. And I was like, I like that. But then I started getting, you know. Until just a couple years later, you did see them on MTV, and then they lost. By then, I didn't like them. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I like Master of Puppets. The funny thing about it is... It is only a few years, but it seemed like a lifetime. Oh, yeah. Like, if you look at the history of Metallica, who are still with us today. Oh, yeah. Look at that time from the early 80s to them being on the, uh, the uh, and Justice for All, right? Yeah. It's a very short period of time in horrible, the big scheme of things. Record. It's unlistenable. And Justice for All. And Justice for All is unlistenable. The mix is just, it just it, it's another story. You remember when one was on the radio just constantly? Oh, yeah. That's all it was. And by then, I had moved on to other... You know, I started getting into like no effects. I, you know, guys in PN turned me on to stuff like that. The Southern California, you know, kind of pop punk or that type of stuff. When you said so, the guys in Positively Negative got yeah. you into no effects. That's right. I started hearing, you know, because I, I do the, you know, the big, you know, the, the really underground, like Dead Kennedys and all that type of stuff and Subhumans and, you know, whatnot. Sex Pistols, obviously. Right. So but, when did you start playing music? When did you realize the dream and say, okay, I'm going to do this? I got a guitar in like eighth grade. It was from a friend with like a Sears, a little crappy amp. My brother had a guitar and an amp. He had a Marshall and a Les Paul, and I was like, ooh, you know. So I wanted that. So I, did, I don't think I started playing. My first band was in high school, it was just two of us. And it was called Scurvy. That was the name. And we like tried to write thrash songs. We never played anywhere or anything like that. And then out of high school, I started bands with two other guys, Oliver Little and, uh, I can't remember the other guy's name. Everyone's going to give me crap. <laughs> but we were at Grumble. And our goal, this was just out of high school, maybe eight, 19 or so. 
No, yeah, I don't think we're 21. Yeah, we might have been. I might be jumping up a bit, but our goal, we wanted to play. We wanted to start this band, and we wanted to pl- play with Nirvana. This is before Bleach had came out. Right. We wanted to play with that band, because they were. I liked what they were doing. We'd seen them play and stuff. And then Bleach came out, we're like, oh, we're not going to get we're not going to get that gig, but we wanted to, we wanted to play with them. You started grumble to play with Nirvana. That was my. And did goal. you guys sound like them? No, <laughs> but that was kind of the sound. You know, we're you know. I'm did go, you like? By then, I'm going to shows all the time, and I'm hearing that and Seattle were you, sound. Were you digging all that stuff that was yeah, happening? All that early sub pop stuff. There was a lot of cool stuff yeah. happening. But like like I said, when there all were that a was lot going, of shows. I'd go and I'd kind of stand there with my head cocked to the side, not really even knowing if I was enjoying myself. And I look back at some of the shows now, and I'm like, "Yeah, that was cool." Well, and every once in a while, I'd see a band like a, go see the Fluid. You know, they'd they'd come to town or whatever, and it'd be like, yeah. "Oh, that band was amazing." Well, yeah, that's the thing. I was never into Pearl Jam. Alice in Chains hadn't didn't do it for me. It was like Nirvana, that Bleach album. I really liked that. And then the other bands were like, uh, "Oh God, what?" The, like Seven Year Bitch, mm-hmm. or uh, do you remember? They were uh, always good. Do you remember uh, what was the all girl band with Carrie Canary? Was the singer the little little short girl? Uh, fuck, someone out there knows what I'm talking about. She sounded like Lemmy, but she was about about four feet tall. A little oh, the girl guitar player always wore like a clown outfit. But uh, oh, I hate that I'm not able to say who this is. It's gonna pop up, and then they were from here. Yeah, they're from Seattle. It was a uh, it's killing me. Oh. Dickless. 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 Okay. Them. And I mean, because it was in the days. I never saw Dickless play live. But you could go down to Pioneer Square and pay 10 bucks and get into all the different clubs. And you'd see just all oh, you different paid, kinds you, of bands, you, too. You paid one cover to For, get in all the clubs in Pioneer, Pioneer Square. Square in downtown and Seattle. And they're all playing different kinds of music. That's fantastic. And then, you know, going to see great shows like Poison Idea, stuff like that. You know, shows at the OK Hotel. Some awesome bands there. Sweaty Nipples. <laughs> but but all those but, but thing is though, Sweaty nipples. You said it, so that means on your on the blog page for this, I get to put that video for Chicken Snake or whatever it well, is. Now here's the thing about a lot of these bands; they were alive bands. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And then when the record came out, like the Sweaty Nipple records, it's like, no. Like there's a band, like nope, fits a depression. Fits a depression. Live, dude. He'd play his guitar and he'd jump up and stand on top of his half stack. He'd jump up there and stand and just mm-hmm. rock it. It was a great show. But when the CD, when I got the record, as I say, uh, I couldn't capture the the energy of it. Bleach had it. Bleach captured it. Yeah. I remember seeing it was them. Harder. At, I remember seeing them at the first annual Lame Fest at the Moore Theater. It was Mudhoney, Nirvana, and Tad, and it was just an awesome, awesome show. That's like, a that is a really great show. It was it was awesome, and. I, I like Mudhoney and all, but everybody really liked Mudhoney and thought they were the band that was going to be... Mm-hmm. They never did it for me. I like them. I like them better now. Yeah. You look back I like it. them a lot better now. I think because all my friends, if you didn't, you know, in your circle of friends, if you didn't like something that everybody liked, but you just haven't listened to it. I now. saw them with Danzig at that show at the Underground when Danzig toured on the first album. Okay. Did you see that show? No. Oh, it was great. <laughs> it was in the uh, University District. Nice. I remember when we used to skate. We used to skate uh, in the U District. We had a path. We'd start at the uh, right at the entrance to the University of Washington, mm-hmm. and we'd cut through the school and we'd go through Red Square and we'd end up back at the parking lot and we'd loop back around on the Ave. 
we'd do that in the middle of the night all when you, the time. When you were skateboarding? Yeah. Okay. When did you start skateboarding? Um, Sophomore, junior year. Yeah. And I kind uh, of fiddled around, but it was like after I graduated, we'd come down and skateboard all the time. I, I, can, I was never any good at ramps or anything like that. It was street. Why did you start skateboarding? Everybody else was. It was fun. How did you get your first skateboard? Bought it at Tim's bike shop. What was it? A Gator. Nice. Yeah. All right. Do you know yeah. the trucks and wheels? Uh, they're independent trucks, I'm sure, because that's what everybody you had to have. You had to have Indies, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't. People have a hard time remembering what their wheels were. My buddy broke it. He broke I lent your it to gator? him and broke it. And never got me new, and that kind of ended my skateboarding career. Really? So you had one board the whole time? Well, no, I had I had a couple really bad boards, but the real board was oh, the gator. Okay, so that was your first. You're not yeah. even going to talk about the bad ones. Oh, but I was thinking. So you sk- had a, what a Nash? Oh yeah, probably. I, I had a banana board way oh, back when. Well, you get know, one of your little kid. Like, yeah, yeah. We're little. Yeah, I don't even count the banana boards as as the real skateboarding. Well, yeah, you learn how to stand up on it though. Yep, basic stuff. No, but, but was, my point was. When we skated through the U District and we came across this shoe store, it was the, I don't know what shoe store it was on the Ave, and there was a band playing, and it was Green River. And we didn't know who any of them was were. Was it like Wooly Mammoth or something? I don't remember. I remember us coming in, this band's playing, they're like, hey, this is our first on our uh, our shoe store tour. We're going to play at the Kinney's at the uh, Alderwood Mall next week, or some mall or something. <laughs> and then later on, I'm like, then we found out who that was, you know, years later, like, yeah, we saw them, didn't we? We only watched a couple songs and left. Sure. You know, it's a band in a shoe store. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're playing, you're out of high school, you're you're playing in this band, Grumble. You don't get to play with Nirvana. Never played any shows. Never we, we played, played any with, shows We played at with all. a drum machine. So we thought that was, was cool. When was the first time you were in a band that played a show? Uh, I joined, we started a band with, uh, I went to school with a guy, Darren Milsom. He was a year older than me. And then I met his brother, who was in a band called uh, Desdemona. They were like a thrash band in North Everett. They were the first. Do you know where the Jam Shacks are in Everett? I don't. Well, there's a place called the Jam Shacks. It's storage units where yeah. bands practice. Sure. They've been practicing down there for 30 years. He was in the first band that practiced there. And so somehow somehow we hooked up and I joined a band with them. And it was a metal band. We called it the Dregs of Humanity. We stole that from, there was a TV show with Jason Bateman. <laughs> he had his own TV show, and I can't remember what the oh, I can't remember the name of the TV show. Jason Bateman. Yeah, it was about the it was it was while Family Ties was going on, or it was after Family Ties, his sister's show. And then he had his own show, a sitcom. He was like you know seventeen or something like this. I don't. I can't remember it. I can't remember. But anyway, he he, well, he made we'll a, figure it out. They made a fake band. And, and it was like these big puppets with black sheets on them, and they were the dregs of humanity. And so Jason, that's what he wanted to name the band. So we were <laughs> it's like calling yourself the River Bottom Nightmare Band, exactly, or the Soggy Bottom Boys. Oh, there you go. <laughs> no, so that that was the first real band, the first show I ever played in front of anybody. It was at Jimmy Z's in Everett, and it was packed. <laughs> and I was like, and I believe, and you were playing I, guitar. I, I'm going to admit this. I'm pretty sure I had a tie dyed shirt on when I played. What year was it? <sighs> 90 may 89 oh i know no, if it was 89 that was totally acceptable like 88 i have an a I 1988 have no recollection of me ever but i have seven seconds t-shirt 
that was tie-dyed. That bands were putting out tie-dyed yeah, shirts. It was a it was a band shirt, but I don't remember what was on it, but it, I think back it's like, Ugh, what was I thinking? Lots of people. There was a whole thing, man. I had a skateboard shop from eighty seven to eighty nine. Halfway through the run, a guy came in and said, I want to consign my shirts here and we sold tie-dye shirts to people in the skateboard oh, yeah. shop. So yeah, it was a thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I probably had a mambo sock too. <laughs> but uh So your first show you played a tie dye shirt. Yeah, but it was packed. I don't know who we were playing with, but it's like I, for about a minute before I went on, I was like, I can't go up there. I can't do it. I can't. Then I did it. It was fine. I lived. <laughs> I had glue feet. You know, who'd you? Yeah. In there and I even sang a couple songs. And who'd I you can't guys sing? Who'd you guys play with? I don't know. A bunch of ever bands. <laughs> who knows? I did. I played way too many shows at Jimmy Z's. Okay. So I played with them for. That's why I lived with Jason, the guitar player, and our drummer Tony. He passed away. Probably like 10, 15 years ago. he We played maybe three, four years. It was like early 90s, positively negative practice near us. And I started becoming friends with them. And then uh, their guitar player was going to go on tour. He was in Dumped, another Everett band. Yep. He was going to go on tour, and they wanted someone to fill in. And it was like, sweet. Cause, I mean, because th- their drummer was a really good drummer. Tony was a good drummer in our band, but... Steve Ricky was really good. It was like, I want to play with a really, really good drummer. So I told them I'm going to be in, you know, I'm going to do that. And Jason didn't have a problem with it, but the other guys in the band was like, you're cheating. It was like, you're cheating on us. I go, it's an open relationship. It's rock and roll, man. <laughs> and so then I started playing with them and they played like show, they started playing shows like at the Lake Union Pub. This and is positively like, negative. Yeah. Okay. And then we played the Lake Union Pub. It was like, I'm digging this. This is a lot more fun. So we, and then eventually the other band kind of, Kind of died out. So where does Slick 50 come in? Slick 50 was after Positively Negative broke up. Okay, so because, there's multiple breakups and reformations. Well, because we had different members. We, the I think it was Mo and... Uh, well, there was a point when the other guitar player came back, so then we had two guitar players. And then there was a point after about a year, maybe half a year in the band, I finally told them, I was like, I'm going to quit. It's either me or him. I'm mm-hmm. not going to play in a band with that guy anymore. Oh. Because he's an idiot. I'm not going to bring any names up or nothing. <laughs> but everyone knows Everybody what you're talking about. It. Oh, yeah. They all know. They'll agree. He had a fit at, uh, we were supposed to play a show at the Lake Union Pub, and then they bumped us to last. It was like, big deal. And he went out with a bat and broke the meter out oh. on the club, and he started throwing beer around and stuff. And it's like, after that, I said, after the show, I'm done. And I go, you either kick him out or I'm quitting. So they got rid of him, and then oh, things nice. went better. <laughs> I was like, so what year is this? Early 90s, and then the drummer and guitar player moved to Portland. They started a band called uh, Iowa Hawkeyes. We ended up touring with them once. but uh, So then we were going to find a new drummer, and we said, let's just start another band. Let's just do a you know a four-piece guitar-based drums. And so we got Jim in the band. He joined, and we called it Slick 50. And that's when I did my first real tour with them. Okay. We did the U.S. in a month. You went... Like, with Slick 50, you went on tour for a month. Yeah. And you did you have the 7-inch out when you went on tour? Yes. Okay, so the, yeah, there's we recorded it at his house, yeah. Right. How'd that go? It was interesting. We was had, that an eye-opener, a U.S. tour? It was, oh, the tour was awesome. And what year was it? Got to be like 93. 93, okay. 94, because yeah, I quit Slick 50 to move to Chicago with my now wife, because things were kind of fizzling out on that. So it have been about 94. So you met your wife mm-hmm. and moved to Chicago? Cause she, she, we'll get to that. Oh, so okay. when we did the tour. It was cool. You know, it was an eye opener. 
you know, but I did, I did the smartest thing before we went on tour. I bought a hundred, I think it was $150 worth of McDonald's coupons. Oh. So we had food. <laughs> we wouldn't have eaten for a week for, a, there would have been a week or two where we didn't eat if we didn't have that. And they were all coming to you and saying like, Oh no, no, you. it was for the band. It was oh. for everybody. But it, it, this is before supersize me. We all came back with, we had gained weight. <laughs> <laughs> it, got, it got to the point where we would only buy breakfast. We'd buy a bag of like sausage McMuffins or something like that in the morning and eat those during the day because we couldn't stomach anything else. And they had the Monopoly game going. So we had like 50 of the, the playing pieces. Just, you know, but you'd win free car. food on that sometimes. Well, that was the bad part. We're like, oh, I want French fries. <laughs> we didn't want to eat McDonald's anymore. I don't think we spent it all either. It was brutal. I still can't really eat a McDonald's anymore. Oh, we did a lot of Taco Bell. 93 when I was at Thundertail. And the way we the way we decided it, if we come to a town where we're playing a town that doesn't have a McDonald's, it ain't worth playing. It's not a town. Because they were there everywhere. What what towns are there without McDonald's? Oh, there's some out there in the Midwest. There's little bergs that are called, you know, it's a big, it's a big world out there. <laughs> it's a different world. McDonald's to McDonald's across the country. But it was cool. It was eye-opening, you know, because I... Lived in my little area, then going into the south. You got to see a lot of other City. types of people. Yeah, we played like at uh, ABC No Rio. Oh, wow. In New York. That yeah. was cool. We played a... Saw the most brutal fight I've ever seen in my life outside of that place. We saw a dude walking down the street with no pants on and a machete. <laughs> <laughs> We're outside of ABC No Rio? Oh, yeah. What a what we a had, wonderful we neighborhood! We just to just watch it. When the van pulled up, because it's a food not bombs place, the van pulls up, <laughs> and instead of a windshield, they got a big rectangle piece of plexiglass glued to the van. We're like, "What's up with the windshield? Oh, someone stole it." <laughs> like it's a different town, man. Things are a little different here than they are. It's it's different again. It's like oh yeah, it's been a long time. I mean, we're talking about over twenty years since the, st- the story. Well, yeah, we went there time. again in early two thousand. PN did a full tour, and we played CBGBs and played some, you know, and it was about as successful, same kind of tour, but yeah, it was cool. It, but it, New York seemed, uh, t- 10 years later, or whatever it was, eight years later, New York was a lot different, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It? Oh, yeah. Cleaner. Were people trying to get into the van at night? <laughs> we were in Brooklyn the first time, and we slept in the van, and someone working <laughs> on the door. While you were in it? Yeah. <laughs> someone always sleeps in the van. Everybody should do that once. At least drive or drive around the country. Oh, go to the it. south and see what's going, really going on there. Right, it, it's a different planet. You don't have to cross a border into another country. You have nope. got to see how other people live. Just get a little bit of an idea about what's going on in the world. Right. So that when you're sitting in your armchair making your really smart comments about politics, <laughs> you at least have some point of view. My right? wife always says I'm exaggerating, but the band can back me up 100. percent When we're in, we were in a. Uh, Eastern New York, like Olean, I think it's Olean, New York. We're playing in a, co- uh, it was an ice cream shop, but it's where it's a little teeny town. And they're like, you know, two hours, maybe three hours from New York City. Mm-hmm. And all these punk kids, none of them had been to New York City. <laughs> none of them to see bands. And then we're- like We're three hours away. Yeah. We're sitting in the the table, you know, selling shirts and stuff. And the girl goes, where are you guys from? From Seattle. Is that in Cleveland? We're like, well, no, it's Seattle, Washington. Well, where's that? And Rich just looks at her and goes, go away. <laughs> <laughs> but we got it so many times. You say Washington, and they're like, no clue. Yeah. No clue. In the was. middle of nowhere. And, and like I said to Rich, I go, you know, I wasn't the greatest student in school. I didn't pay attention. I barely graduated just because I was lazy. You couldn't name a state 
and me not be able to stick my finger right where it is on the map. Or at Kentucky, least... Kentucky, Kentucky, I might be a, yeah. an inch off. But, but at least have known that there was a Exist. state called that. Yeah. <laughs> or someone says, like, you know, Oklahoma. Huh? Who? That in Canada? What? We're like, say, you know, it's it's north of California. They like, like Alaska? No. There's a country in between Alaska and our state, Canada. But we got it so many times. It's a, it's a different world. It, it, when you say Washington, it's D.C. But now, I think with the inter, interwebs now. Yeah. And these were, this, that tour was like, you know, both those tours were book your own fucking life. Right. Book your own fucking life. Okay, it did it. The, it was good. But the second tour, we the the second full U.S., we did it with a, a MapQuest because I had got a computer now. And so I printed out directions from each point and I had a big uh, folder with all these. So you use the computer, but you still had to print everything out and put it in a folder. Oh, yeah. And Fantastic. It, it was fucked up. It was Because fu- <laughs> that was like the beginning of MapQuest. We, but it wasn't like you just, okay, we're going on tour, get the McNally, the road atlas. and That would have uh, been we, smart. No, we're going to use the computer. Because, <laughs> yeah, somehow I ended up being the driver in both Boston and New York and just driving around circles trying to figure out where the hell we were. <laughs> but it all worked out. We all, nobody died. But yeah. yeah, you made it. Yeah. Okay, so wait, hold on now. You, the band breaks up and you leave with your future wife to yeah. go to. Well, Sh- yeah, we met on a blind date. You met on a blind date? My ex-band member from the Driggs Humanity came to see us and we were playing at the Riviera in Linwood, which is now Buca de Beppo. <laughs> and we were opening up for uh, for uh, Joey Shithead, uh, DOA. DOA. Oh. And there was like 20 people there. And my and so they brought her to try to hook up with me, you know, and we, she said, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Well, I'm going to go play. And then she's from Sweden. She likes ABBA. And she saw what I'm sure she was very unimpressed with what I was doing. <laughs> and so afterwards, like, then, oh, nice to meet but, you. But then, then if she liked you, she legitimately liked you because she yeah. hated your music. Yeah. Well, and then she had to leave because she had an interview that night and it was for a job in Chicago. Oh. So then, like, my friend convinced his girlfriend to tell her to invite me to their Christmas party. So me and Tony went to a Christmas party. She worked for some, you know, office, I think quest or something we went to the christmas party and we were definitely the standing out you know i had i think i think i'd bleached blonde hair really short by then or it could have been red i don't remember but i and uh it's kind of a fancy schmancy house and he t- takes us into his wine cellar and we're all standing there this is my first real date with brit he's like oh and here's the da 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 and i go where's the thunderbird and the whole everybody in the room just goes <laughs> Wait, did it laugh? Oh, Tony did. Tony's like, <laughs> and he just, he, he, the dude just gives me a look, then looks back and continues talking. <laughs> I would have thought it was funny. I'm the guy from Everett. Didn't know better. But anyway, then I took her to a show at the uh, Lake Union Pub. Played with like, I think, I can't remember who we played with, but it was rowdy. People were spitting and throwing up and, you know, Lake Union Pub stuff. And I figured if she likes me now, if she she'll like me, up, whatever. If, if she, she can, can put up with that. my life. Exactly. And, uh, well, apparently she did, because you're still with her, right? Yeah, we're married. We have a child. It's phenomenal. Yeah. But you went to Chicago. She got the job. Yeah, and so Slick 50 wasn't really doing anything. It was fizzling out and said, and they told me, she, when I told her she was moving to Chicago, you're going to move with her. Oh, no, 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 no. And finally I said, that's not a bad idea. So I lived in Chicago for a year. For one year? Yeah. It was almost exactly a year. And what the hell did you do in Chicago? I worked at I worked the door at a club called Mothers Two, mm-hmm. uh, just you know checking IDs, 
And then I got a job at a place called The Great Ace. It was a gigantic, huge Ace hardware, but it was like a, they sold furniture and everything. It was kind of like a little small Ikea. Oh, wow. So I worked there, working in the back room and loading stuff into people's cars. And we had loaded up, oh, what's his name? R. Kelly came. And we loaded all the crap in his car and he didn't tip us. So we all made fun of R. Kelly. Ugh. A couple of guys from the Chicago Bears came in. They, they gave us big tips. Nice. I was there for when the Sonics played the Bulls in the uh, the play, in the championship. Mm-hmm. And I had to, I worked the door that night and I wore my uh, seat, my Sonics hat. <laughs> I did the Sonics proud. And everybody there was trying to tell me that Jordan's throwing the game so they could bring it back to Chicago. You're stupid. He's not throwing any games. <laughs> Oh, you mean because of that whole idea that it, the series needs to go... He wants it to go longer so they can win it at home. Right, win it at home, <laughs> and also because every game that gets played is a certain amount of economic... Yeah, like, but... Yeah. That's There's nonsense. a lot of people that make money off the of games, and that makes sense, but that's not what happens. No, because yeah. they're making enough money. They don't want to lose a game, and then... Because I, I said, like, the Sonics didn't fall backwards into the playoffs. They earned their right to be playing the Bulls. They could be, you know... But I did see how... uh the police work in Chicago compared to here. You so, saw how the police so, work. Yeah, so the bar that I worked at, it was uh, it's like it's like two blocks of bars on both sides. It's like the place where everybody goes. And so I was in charge of this big pane of window. And that's when you see all the crowds after the championship, they gather right there. Mm-hmm. There's thousands and thousands of people in that, in that two block area just going nuts. And I started flipping cars, but they weren't flipping cars, but they, I noticed the cops started lining up with horses and they had their, uh, they had billy clubs and helmets and short sleeve shirts and they're just standing there and the guys on the horses and they kind of blocking off certain streets. So they're going to, you can see they're going to push a group down this street, a group down the, and disperse them. And they said, you got two hours, we're shutting it down. This is what time we're shutting it down. And then they kept telling them every half hour. And oh, they gave they, lots of warnings. Then, then they got down to about 10, you have five minutes to disperse. And so then the first line of cops start walking in like this. They start walking, you know, I'm my hand is moving left to right here. <laughs> like this. It's like a wall of cops. <laughs> and then there's a group of people that they're walking towards. And you can see most people are, okay, it's time to leave. But there's like 100 people there still doing their thing. And one guy's out front about 20 feet further. And he's just kind of shaking his head and talking smack. And the first cop gets up there and just goes... With the billy club. Just billy out. clubs him. And Boom. dude, whoo, streets are cleared within like five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> but I'm just like, holy shit, did you see that? And we're like, yeah, that's what they do. And you're but, just working the door. Yeah, I'm just like, holy crap, that's that's harsh. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. But it's just boom, done. One down solved. and everyone else bails. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Um, but I thought I was going to be there for like another and four how, hours. And how quaint now that that's how it's handled. Yeah, exactly. They, wait, they didn't even have riot shields? Nope. They didn't bring a tank in? Nope. And just... So a bunch of dudes looking to get this over with and go home, I think. Right. So then uh, then you get the opportunity to come back to Seattle. Well, yeah, because I tried... Uh, I put ads in all the little zines and stuff looking to, to play in a band, and uh, it was brutal. Out there it was brutal? Yeah. I, I was very spe- specific. I wanted to do that kind of Fat record style thing. I wanted to do something, you know, I put Legwag in... No effects, that kind of style, maybe good riddance. And I got people that come over and never, and I talked to them on the phone, and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. When they, when I met them, they never heard of any of those bands. They just, <laughs> they just wanted to get together with you and play some music. Well, and you couldn't say Screeching Weasel? What, if they would have said that, it would have been great. But like this guy, he wanted to meet me. 
and we lived in this apartment right in the middle of downtown and there was a bar downstairs. And so I said, meet me at this bar. I didn't want to know where I live. I had talked to him like four or five times. His dad owned an apartment building. They had a big jam space. He had guys together. They wanted to do a band. They were all stoked. And I, we talked about the band and he talked like he knew exactly what I was talking about. So he shows up. I meet him at the bar. He's sitting to my left. My wife is to my right. And I'm sitting at the bar with him talking. I start getting this weird vibe about this guy. And uh, I go, so what do you do? He goes, well, I'm an artist. I do everything. And Britt's like, well. I'm an artist. I do everything? Yeah, and Britt's like, what, like painting? Oh, yeah, painting, sculpture, music. I go, well, how long have you been doing music? Well, I just kind of started, but I, I know I need to be a singer. And that's so I'm like, oh. So I go, okay. I go, what is your all-time favorite band? If you could, What is the band that you want to hear? He goes, oh, that's easy. REO Speedwagon. And I just stop. And he, go, he goes, I like how they start out. And they start, and then they shift gears, and then they really shift it into fourth gear at the end and just start rocking. I go, I got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And I came back, and I sat on the other side of my wife and just stopped talking to him until he left. <laughs> I was so cool. That was the last person I let come over. And I was so fucking mad. And, I'm an artist. I do everything. And, is and insane. When he le- and when he left, Rick goes, who's Ario Speedwagon? And I go, oh. She goes, that's not what you're into, is it? No, no, it's not. <laughs> but of all the things that were going to come out of his mind, you know, I, I thought maybe you'd say, you know, Metallica or anything. I wasn't expecting audio speed, but I was so <laughs> mad. I, I kind of left my wife talking to him for it, and then he finally got up and left. He well, got it's the when they really shifted into fourth gear, though. They, oh, they were, yeah, but he goes, yeah, they really shifted down, and then they start rocking. Like, what the fuck? Is, who did I talk to on the phone? Yeah. <laughs> who did they send in his place? <laughs> So you, how do you come back? Yeah, I moved back like two or three months before the wife, and then I got the band back together. And you guys weren't married yet? No. Okay. So you come back and say, hey, guys, I came back for you. I said, I'm coming back. Let's do it. And so they found another drummer and guitar player, and we it started up again. Okay. And was this the version then that I knew? I No. The drummer and guitar player, we did uh, two, we did one EP with them at Hanzik Audio. Uh Uh-huh. And that was about, you may have been doing stuff there That's before, right before. No, I didn't know yet. Uh, we clearly crossed paths multiple times throughout the 90s. Yeah. But it wasn't until neither one of us paid attention to the other person. Yeah, until Until Kinko's. we were in that Kinko's. And yeah. then it was like, well, and you didn't say, oh, I, re- I know this guy. And I didn't say, oh, I know this guy. But we knew all kinds of the same people. So we were just, I mean... We yeah. were just in the same spots, but... Yeah, we we did a couple EPs at Hanzig, and then we did a full length down at uh, Lastra with Mike Lastra in Portland. He's done a bunch of Poison Idea records. and The Hanzig Audio was this great spot I, across the street from that Mars Hill church that was talked oh yeah, about before. But that, I liked the full length we did, but it just wasn't the same as the stuff Hanzig did. Ah, I see what you're saying. You, you did the, the seven inch was what you did at Hanzig. Yeah, we did two seven inches there. And Chris then, Hanzik has his own he's way of doing things. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. And it was lot. we did, most of it was live. We did some overdubs and stuff. He just, he got the best out of it and it, was, it had a little more edge to it. It's just, I, it, I, I quickly came to did. trust Chris that if he said something needed to be a certain way, I could go, well, it's Hanzik and just let it, let, let him make the decision. And you it, know, it was, and there's been very few people in my life that I felt that way about. And it was recording with him is what got me to want to start doing recording. I've always been interested. I was big on the liner notes, reading the uh, 
who produced this and who engineered this. And I was mm-hmm. thought, that's a cool. Once I realized I wasn't going to be a freely. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I can still get on this. I can still get on this list somehow. And then, you know, recordings that we did before and stuff, I never was really happy with them. I liked the Hanzig stuff a lot. And then we did one more album. We recorded it at uh, the Autopsy Room. This is near the end. Near the end. Now, Autopsy Room is Jesse O'Donnell yeah. down in uh, in Tacoma. And then we didn't like it. And I, some were kind of, we were looking at Jesse, but I realized now it had nothing to do with him. It was us. It was the beginning of us not giving a shit, really. Because some guys in the band were just kind of half-assing it. They weren't you know, into it like we used to be. We had a label that put out a record. And they said we could do a U.S. Did uh, we do a Europe tour for us? Mm-hmm. One month, thirty shows in thirty days. We Your record like, came out on a European label. Yeah. Which label was it? Mad Skull Records. Mad Very Skull small Records. guy. Just you know puts out bands he likes. But yeah. he, he was gonna. He was in a band called Brezhnev. They're been around for a long time. But he was gonna do a uh, European tour. He'd provide the van and the back line, do thirty shows in thirty days, and all we had to do was get over there, and nobody in the band could get their poop in a group. Two of us had passports, and that was it, and nobody else. And that's when I started kind of, and that's right when we went into the studio to record the next one, and we didn't like it. So then we went to another place where we recorded before, a friend of mine's studio, and re-recorded the entire album. And by the end of that, our drummer said, I'm going to quit. You just all hated each other after that. Well, we didn't hate each other, but we could tell we were just, and then we all kind of like, I don't want to look for another drummer. Let's play a last show. Let's end on a high note. So we did end last show, and that was it. You played the last show. Second Avenue Pizza. I thought you played your last show in Everett and I filmed it. No. Second Avenue Pizza. Your last show was Second Avenue Pizza in Seattle? Yep. Then what the hell did I film in uh, up in Everett? I, I thought I filmed something like Jimmy Z's right at the end. Oh, Jimmy Z's wouldn't have been near the end. We got banned from there. <laughs> <laughs> we got banned from there a couple times, actually. I have a uh, positively negative show shot, I think, from two cameras. Nice. Um, I'd like to see it. Yeah. No, Ward. It's around somewhere. Cohen was at the last show at the 2nd Avenue Pizza. And you can see, we have film of it. All it sounds like is... Cohen, Whoa. we did not mention. Cohen is a guy that we worked with at the Kinko's on 2nd Avenue when we worked together who was just seriously like king of the world. Cohen's awesome. Cohen's awesome. Drummer. Yep. I was in a band with him for a few minutes. Me, I was supposed to be. Me, Robbie, and him. It was supposed to be Ron Gardaby, too. But he kind of bailed on it. There have been multiple, I believe, incarnations of that supposed to be band. And uh, at one point, uh, a Ram, Arslanian from Canada, yeah. and and I were also supposed to be involved in that. And it was going to be great. And just a thing, different things happened. Well, yeah, we went. Totally understandable things happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like. Oh, yeah. Well, I went to jam with Cohen, and I brought Robbie, the old bass player from uh, Positive and Negative, who can write songs like that. Mm-hmm. I've mixed a couple records of his already. He he does everything himself, and so I brought him down. And wait, is this Rob Minimarts? Yes, <laughs> Mister Robbie. <laughs> he uh, he's in like four bands in New Orleans right now. Sure, he the brains behind Ikari. Yes, uh, they. I have I have their next record in Pro Tools. I'm waiting for vocals to come get done. Robbie already recorded it and sent it up. Nice. Got to get mixed, and then Neil's going to come and do vocals. I came and did backups with Neil on That's that, right. on the first one on that one. Ikari. I told him they, need, I right. told him they should have named it Pettybone, because they kept putting up vocals, because he was supposed to come in and do backups. They kept waiting. <laughs> they should have named the band yeah. Pettybone? No, no, the album. Pettybone. Oh. <laughs> so that way he's actually on the album. Oh. Uh, well, 
If he needs backups again, I'll have to try to drag no, it. No, with the Cohen it. thing though, we went we came in there and Robbie wrote like ten songs and two practices. Oh, and then wow. we recorded it. We re- we came went to my studio, it's called Les Paul Stanley. <laughs> and all the lyrics were <laughs> it's actually pretty one of these days I'm gonna remix it, we're gonna release it. We got pictures of Robbie, he put on a Paul Stanley makeup and Ward made some like pictures of it. It's like the rock and roll over, but it's him. I told him to wear the make. He was he was already in New Orleans. I go do less Paul uh, Paul Stanley makeup. Run around the block about four times. Get all sweaty wearing a wife beater, and it's him, <laughs> dude. You got to see the picture. It's awesome. Well, will you send the picture to me so I can put it on the blog page for this episode? I will. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll show it to you. It's good. So we we did uh, allow this to go kind of past where we met because normally we yeah. come up to where we meet and then and then go okay so now we understand who you are and we pretty much did that you came yeah. back from chicago you started the band up again brit your wife comes back she moves back also yep. you get the job downtown and then you run into johnny boring and he says come work at the kinkos i'm manager of yep. and then boom we're friends bada bing just like that and you were just like cool dude right oh and then you gave me the dead fish handshake all the time <laughs> but you have to it has you're to be the, cold it you're the to- master Kyle is the master of you go to shake his hand. And I'm a big handshake guy. I always have been. And he gives you the limpest, like, Well, if I can, if palm. I can get my hand on, like, a, a cold beer or a cold glass, then it's wet. <laughs> like, for you, it's a it's a matter of pride, right? Just give someone a I don't wet, do it cold, as, clammy, I don't do it as limp. much as I used to, but. Oh, you really did, though. Yeah. And I've probably, like, lost my mind the first couple times. Don't do that. Or the little, the little tickle. <laughs> no, I don't think you ever gave me the little tickle. <laughs> Awful. And the problem is, I have a daughter now that's exactly like me. Same oh, you've sense raised of humor. You've, well, what do you what do you think, man? Just... It's mini me, <laughs> much to my wife's demise. So, demise. <laughs> to her demise, dismay. 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 I said dismise. <laughs> I made a new word. Dismise. Yes, it's it's dismay to death. It's good on microphones too. It's got a lot of sibilance in it. Dismise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then. Then I learned my lesson and learned that I don't know everything, that there's been this whole history of Everett that I haven't been paying enough attention to. Yeah, uh, you paid enough attention to it. It's Everett. I suppose I did. But <laughs> you guys, uh, you get involved. You let me use the music for the movie, which is awesome. Uh, and that was probably maybe even around the Hansik time because I ended up editing the movie at Hansik in the middle of the night. He let me come in when, ba- as long as no one had locked out the, the studio, I could come in after the band stopped at like 10 or 11 and stay overnight and edit on and you video sleep on that old leather couch by the window. A, the leather couch. And at one point I had a cot in there because when I had to <laughs> finally do the digitizing where I, you know, the computer would tell me like, okay, this is going to take six and a half hours yeah. and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't touch the computer. Right. So I basically hit start, set an alarm, just go to sleep. And hopefully it didn't stop in the middle. At least once it did. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of there were a lot of mistakes with it. But then you know the movie came out. I, I sent it to some festivals and I made some. I was going to have the VHS come out just a few months after and booked the thing at the Paradox and you guys played it. It was awesome. It was, it was fun. fun. It was a good movie. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Whatever, dude. I enjoyed it. <laughs> it is I still have a copy. Know. Yeah, I mean it's out there. People can check it out. You know. Like I heard it's in Spanish now, or is it over? There's a Spanish version that is dubbed into Spanish by professional voice actors. That's awesome. That is, and that's it, that's up online for free. People can go to YouTube and see that version of it. That's awesome. It's way better than my version because the people doing the voices are actually pros. They're actors? <laughs> yeah. Not your friends? <laughs> no. 
but even though it's still my friends doing the physicality, yeah. like the, the voices are more confident in nice. a lot of cases. Nice. Um, not everyone. I mean, you know, some people killed it in the original version. What yeah. are you going to do? But uh, yeah, that was a fun process. And then I leave. I go to work a real job. You left Kinko's. I left Kinko's and went to school. And you went to school. And what did you go to school for? Audio engineering. Got a degree at Shoreline. You went to, okay. And you got a degree in audio engineering. Yeah. And you started a studio in your, what, in the basement of your house well, in the U district? I met Sean, my studio partner, at school. We met in a Theory 101, music theory. And we realized that he said he played a bunch of notes. I had played trumpet before I played guitar. And I realized I didn't remember theory. Because <laughs> if you can't tell me all these notes, ding, 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 you're probably not in the right class. I'm like, so we had to take a pre-theory class. So me and him both admitted. A lot of people didn't admit it, and they had lots of trouble in theory. So we did that class with him, and then you have to find partners in the class, in you know, different projects. Usually in the second, first year, you're just editing, 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 doing all the boring stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we started recording bands there. Then we set up a little studio at his house, and we started, you know, getting a little bit of track. We didn't know what the hell we were doing, though. It was really bad gear, and we thought, oh. We live, We were still under the fix it in the mix phase. Every engineer goes through it, and then we uh, then I finally sold my house in the U district. We're buying a new one, and I told the wife, "All I want is a basement." So that was the deal. Yep. We get whatever kind of house, just as long as I have a basement. Yep. That I can record. In. And I found the one in Wallingford, and it took us about three years to build the studio. Right. And I've been in that studio. It's really nice. Yeah. It took a, it took a long time, but it's done. And now, you know, we've fine-tuned it. We really got it down. So what is your studio called? Jam Recording Company. Jam Recording Company. Is Jam an acronym? Well, it sounded cool because it was Jam, but the guy that helped us build, we couldn't have built the stool. The, the stool. The we studio. Could. We couldn't have built the stool. or We couldn't have built a stool, but we built a studio. And we couldn't have done it without my buddy Jerry Mitchell. And, his, mm. and he's J. Allen Mitchell. Right. And so I called it Jam Recording Company. Well, that's cool. He gets free recording for life. Free recording for life? For what? For doing like carpentry? Oh, no. He would come in and say, okay, we're building this wall. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to lay it out. You need to do this and this. And, and so me and Sean would do the work during the week. And the weekend, he'd come in and fix what we did wrong. And <laughs> he'd tell us about, you know, decoupling the floors, you know, separating the walls. There's a, so much involved. People look in there and it's like, well, it's just two rooms that are split together, you know, but there's so much inside because we had to be soundproofed, right? Can't have any vibrating. Right. My joke is if we ever move out and someone buys the house, that studio is coming apart in one by one sections. <laughs> everything is liquid nailed. Everything has a three inch screw every three inches. Oh, wow. Everything. And it's all double walls, double ceiling. It just, yeah. Floating floor. So you uh, you record in there. Yep. You have rates. You go out. People can book it out. Yep. They can bring in their own person or they just work with you. They can bring in the person. I, it's usually just me or Sean, but if they want, they can come in. I mean, it's a Pro Tools system. It's a, we have a digital board. Okay. Pretty straightforward. Oh, I've been in there. I've worked with you. Yeah. It's more professional than some studios I've been in for sure. It's, it was very good. I would yeah. recommend. I'm not a, a recording inclined guy. I don't know all the details. What are the details that someone looking to record would need to know about your studio? Uh, it's two rooms. We've got one, you know, one live room and then the mixing room. Got a 24-channel digital board. Got Pro Tools HD2 system, the standards, you know, lots of outboard gear. We have a 24-track, 2-inch machine, but it's going away soon. We're going to sell it. You are? I want it. I like using it, but it's just tape's too expensive, and bands don't want to 
bands want to do many, many, many takes. You don't do many, many, many takes on tape. Right. And you get, That's old you school. Get, you get 15 minutes per reel, and the reels are like 350 bucks now. <laughs> they used to be 100, 120 bucks. Can you do anything with those? I could tell you to put those in Tupperware. Don't leave them in those boxes. Those boxes deteriorate. Well, they've been in those boxes since 1989. Take them out. Get them in a Tupperware. If Wait, you want. put them in Tupperware in the boxes? Uh, no, take the boxes out. Put the actual tape in a like a Tupperware container. Right, so you don't even want the boxes in, the, with, no, no. in with them in the it's Tupperware. It's the boxes. There's chemicals in some of those boxes, and they eat the tape. I went to a big seminar, and they talked about that, how, how <laughs> well, there's, there's warehouses of, uh, like in L.A., of all these tapes in those boxes that are its history is just disappearing because they're in these bad, bad boxes. A lot of these tapes aren't going to be playable. All right. But, so the, what I'm pointing at is the reels for the infamous first step from Bellingham, uh, Straight Edge Band. Uh, they're recording and they're sitting up there on top of a shelf in my office here. And I don't even know, what is that? Three quarter inch? That's like one inch. That's one inch tape? You can't do anything with that. I can't, but what you'd want to do is take it to somewhere like London Bridge and have them bake the tape. They'd bake it, and they could throw it into a Pro Tools session for you, if it's still usable. Yeah, I don't know those people. Yeah, they'll charge you like 150 bucks to do it. Really? Yeah. And then what? I would come out with just the digital files that I could use? Yeah, you'd have a session. And they could even just anybody could open up the session and bounce it down for you. There's stuff that's missing on there. Yeah. But someone could probably figure out how to play the parts. <laughs> they'd be They'd be one of the best to do it. All right, I may I may uh, pick your brain on that because yeah. certain people have uh, wanted to hear what's on those tapes all these years yeah. later, and I don't know that it's one hundred fifty dollars worth of curiosity, but we'll see. Well, everybody throwing twenty five bucks, and you know, <laughs> tell them what you got. It's an easy thing for them to do. If you know, they cook it in this machine for I don't know how long. What does that do? That just salvages what's there. I think it. Uh, I don't know the chemical properties of what it does, but it. Come on, man. You went to school. We didn't talk about tape. We didn't talk about baking tape. We talked about MIDI and Mm. gain stages and all the boring stuff no one wants to hear about. Okay. All right. So, and and speaking of boring stuff no one wants to hear about, this probably counts. So we'll get off of that and we'll we'll talk about you. um, You do this studio. Yep. And you also have some other things that you're doing. You mentioned earlier that you do some commercial... Yeah, music for licensing. Music for licensing. And is that what Hit Chasers is? Yes. Well, the guy that I told you about that played Ride the Lightning for me, mm-hmm. he got a hold of me two years ago, about a year and a half ago, on Facebook. Said, hey, Kyle. I was friends on Facebook. I said, hey, uh, you remember me? I go, of course. You know, I know. Hey, Pete, how you doing? Whatever. Peter. I was called Pete. He's Peter. Peter Barcott. His name is Peter. Peter Barcott. Okay. But he wanted to uh, know if he could come in and watch me record so he could learn how to record better. He's got a little setup in his living room and stuff. And at that time, me and Sean decided we wanted to get into licensing. It's a little, you know, doing little cues and stuff and try to pitch them. And it turned out everything I did sounded like an old punk Ramon song or a metal riff. I was like, we're not going to be able to write any of this stuff that they want. And I remembered Peter is the guy who played violin. He taught him he was he could play Ingve stuff on guitar. He could, he could play any instrument back in high school. And I'm thinking, hey, let's have Peter come in. We could trade riffs for teaching him how to record. And he came in and just started, we were like, hey, we're kind of like thinking about something like this. And he'd play it, what we're talking, you know, the idea. You just, you just and, had that, that language to yes. music. And he's had, he had hours of complete songs that he had already written and recorded at home. 
So after about the second day, I go, okay, let's go in on this 50-50. Me and Sean and Peter will do 50-50. And so we've been writing songs for TV and film. We go through a company called Taxi. Mm-hmm. It's an annual membership, and they have like a rally that you can go to every year, and they with professionals telling you what you need to do. When you got really excited, I talked to you right after you got back from one of those. Oh, and you it, were so amped. Dude, they're, they're great. But And the thing is, getting into it, you have to know there's a lot of competition out there. and It, it takes you about three or four years to gain traction at it. And the idea is you're putting this stuff into like a, almost like a pool that it can be selected no, from? No. No? This company, they have leads. There's a lot of companies, but they have, they, they here's the, the what people are looking for. They're very specific, and it's five dollars a submittal. That's to keep you from sending everything to it. Right, they have to put some money on it so you don't just blank at them. Exactly, exactly. But uh, what it is, they're the middleman. They get like you know a hundred submittals, and they give you a review of it, and they're very, very critical. Not many get through unless it's perfectly. So we've had about fifteen forwards, and like all the people, what they say, all these conventions you meet people who have made you know. There's a guy that sent around his BMI statement in one of these classes, and he made 50000 last quarter. Right. He's got something in everything. But he says his the motto that you'll hear over and over is write it, submit it, forget it. Mm-hmm. And then you just keep writing, keep writing until your catalog gets big enough. I mean, we get like, I think we got like over 50 songs written now in different cues and, and so, little bits. And the idea is that these are the kind of songs that would be in the background in a a car commercial or uh, a TV film, anywhere. video games, it, every single thing on TV has music. Yeah. And somebody's writing it. And is it, some of it has vocals and some of it is instrumental. Yep. But it takes a while for you to figure out, you got to remember, it's got to be what they call uh universal lyrics. Mm. So it can't be talking about LA or my red pen or driving my Ferrari. It's got to be, I'm driving around thinking about stuff. You know, it's got to be because Kind you, of, you make film, you know, if you have a, something going on in the background where they're talking about specific things mm-hmm. in music, it detracts from you. Sure. But it has to have that vibe. And they give you, like, specific samples of music that it's about the groove that they're going for. But it took us a while to figure that out. But we're getting better at it. We're not pitching as much, but the ones we pitch are getting through. And so you guys get together. Three times a week, usually. Three times a week. Yeah. And, you, and then do right, you. Right, for about four hours. And okay, and you already have all the equipment there yeah. to record, and oh, yeah. you're just doing this as a as a team. There's three of you. Well, it's basically me and Peter are mm-hmm. writing and recording it all, and Sean does the mastering. Okay, because he lives out in Duval. He does he masters everything that goes through Jam. If they want to master there, he does the mastering. He's got a little mini studio out there with the same gear. But if, so you really think that eventually this could be the your main gig? It'll be part of the gig. There's money to be made. We did sell a song to The Good Wife. Oh, wow. But, but it was kind of through a weird way. There's a band that got contacted by NBC and wanted a song for their finale. They wanted them to do a cover of a new pornographer song. Hmm. And I can't say the band that they contacted. Right. Because the band came to me and said, we want you guys to do it. And then we'll come and sing over the top of it. and We'll split the sync fee with you. Oh. We're like, okay. So I called Peter and said, So hey. then that they didn't have to do the work of getting, they just wanted Well, he it. said, they don't play very much anymore. He says, there's no way we'd get it done. They right. came to us on Monday. They needed it by the fall, the next Monday. Hey, this is already so identifiable that someone can get in trouble from this story. No. No? No, it, no they won't know. <laughs> they, they can't figure it out because it didn't get played. Oh. They so. bought the song and at the last minute they switched to something else. Oh, okay. But we still got paid for it. That's cool. 
But uh, we wrote the song. Well, I, I called Peter and I said, hey, can you do this? He Your goes, early okay. stuff, always you always get screwed that way. Would you have made more money if it had gotten played? No. Oh, okay. So it's the same to you. Because the thing was, it was a work for hire. It wasn't an original. So we, we just got, you know, we yeah. said we want half of the sync fee. And it was all right. We made some money. But, yeah, yeah, do some but, more of that. But Peter was like, he goes, I give the money back. I wanted to hear it. Because Peter did all the parts. He wanted to hear it himself on TV. He, yep. He okay. So, so there is an artist who still gets hurt here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing I told Peter when he first started doing the licensing with us. I go, before we go further, I want to make something. I want to make sure that, let's say you work on this song. It's something you've been working on for a long time and you finally get recorded. Do you have a problem with it being on a tampon commercial? And he goes, hell no. I go, we can work together. Because licensing is diff- licensing's different, you know. <laughs> like Joey on Friends being the, the the STD guy or the they, herpes guy or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Whatever. <laughs> it's a paycheck. All right. That is fantastic. So, okay. So you do, and but there's a, you do some, is it, I don't want to say this wrong. Is it, is it YouTube or is it a podcast? Well, yeah. Ward, the guy that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Who, want me to mention, he was in a band called Dry Gulch for a couple months. He was in Dry Gulch with people who, wait. There's a picture in my studio. I don't know if anyone in Dry Gulch, Greg Bennick was in Dry Gulch. So, Greg so. Bennick was the best man at Ward's wedding. Greg Bennick was the <laughs> best man at Ward's wedding. Well, it was at the courthouse. But. <laughs> Ward, is, Ward is a missing component in my life. Ward, I feel like, should be a absolute like genius crazy millionaire and like a crazy millionaire the one that like does things where people go oh yeah someone's gonna get hurt like some of ward's ideas there isn't anyone else in my life who has the kind of ideas that ward would say into my ear every single day at that king ward's got all kinds of ideas we have to keep him reined in on the hit chaser thing and i say this (laughs) i mean i mean that is the greatest compliment i can give i that kind of crazy is very special and I cherish it. I got to tell you his latest movie idea that he wants to do. Wait, he, he told me not to tell you, but I'm going to tell you after what? the podcast. Okay, after the podcast. Because <laughs> someone will steal it. It's genius. Oh, I have no doubt it's genius. So, it, well, anyway, Ward, <laughs> so Ward Ward would come over and watch. He was over there while me and Pete were doing this, you mm-hmm. know. And he thought, he goes, you guys should film this and put it on YouTube. We're like, okay. And so we start, you know, kind of figuring out how to do it. And eventually me and Pete are like, you film it and you take care of, you do all of it. So he does the YouTube version of what you guys are doing? Yeah. We first did it where it kind of just, he was, you know, it was very nuts and bolts type stuff, which mm-hmm. is boring. Nobody wants to see that. So he films like us bullshitting with each other. Or he asks us questions. You never hear his voice and it gets us talking about other things. So it's it's kind of tongue in cheek. Sure. But But it is, it shows, you know, the process of us writing these songs and we read the reviews that we get. We talk about the songs that we sent out and stuff. Well, that's cool. So we can we can link this. Uh, to the page also and people can see yeah. what you guys are doing because it's I'm sure there's some people out there that think this is very interesting I think it's very interesting when we got our first hundred subscribers we thanked each one individually <laughs> and we thanked every country <laughs> it took us about half an hour wait your first hundred subscribers to the YouTube channel yeah we read every day of, we even have a green screen now we're getting fancy but it's all filmed on the on iPhones wait you, so you film it on, on with the iPhone like we were talking earlier we like, do the like audio, that movie Tangerine is that it did you feel like they ripped you off Maybe a little, but the audio we do on iPhones. Eventually, I'm going to get some nice lav- lavalier mics and stuff. But you expensive. have audio equipment. Yeah, but we don't want to sit there with a mic in your face where you're, because we're going about it. We don't want to. 
Cause, stop cause you're mixing actually, and then oh, hold up a mic. All right, you so know you're I mean? actually working. You can't have yeah. this other stuff. But eventually, right. you know, get some money on. If we get some money off it, then we'll I'll buy a nice lavalier <laughs> mic so you can hear it. Because that word always says the, the dialogue doesn't sound as good as the music. I'm like, yeah, it's all right. Wait till we make some money, then we'll make it awesome. <laughs> I want to. That's that work ethic. Yeah, I want to sell the songs. <laughs> so you've got that going on. What else, or where do you go from here? I got lots of recording. As soon as I, well, I, I went two years without a job, just doing the studio, and it slowed down. So I took a nine to five, and as soon as I got that stinking job, everybody wants to record. All of a sudden, I'm, so as I'm soon as you're to, not available, boom. Yep, you're a busy guy. I got stuff I got to mix tonight that I'm probably going to put off till tomorrow. Feast or famine, yeah, brother. And then I have a session this weekend. Good. And then I got a couple things going next week. It just, it pays. I mean, they're paying gigs. Well, I'll put the information in the blog page so people can, you know. 35 bucks an hour. 35 bucks an hour. That's for mastering everything. All right. And, the, you know, I know people. Weekend rates will do like 350 for like 10 to 12, 10 to 11 hours. So you get a couple extra hours if you book a weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not, a, and plus I'm not get... a clock Nazi either. I like, you know, it's for everybody's benefit that everything gets done right. Sure. And you're bringing, I mean, that's not just, that doesn't just pay for the actual like space and the equipment. And that pays for your decades of experience. Well, and, and like my teacher said this in school too. It's like, if you're getting into engineering to become rich, go do something else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like my degree in audio engineering is like having a degree in arc, uh, archaeology. Right. Or ancient history or something. I think you know? Steve Albini was talking about this in something I saw recently. It's anything it's to do a, with music. If you get into music to make money, you're going to have a, a life that's very sad and boring. But if you but the, you can make money in the process. So it's got to be from your heart. I you know with, love it. with writing, they talk about how you can't make a living, like screenwriting, yeah. right? They say you can't make a living, but you can make a fortune. Yeah. There, but that's the thing. Like you still have to write like you're making a living in order to get to the place where you make the fortune, right? But if, if you stopped writing, you'd die. It, well, if I stop doing anything, something with music, I'd be like, what am I doing? We have to do something with our lives. Yeah. Every moment that I'm awake, I don't think of what is this moment worth monetarily, right? Some, no. some hours are worth a lot and some hours are worth, you know, yeah. whatever. It's just whatever the enjoyment that you got out of them. Yep. So yeah, you're right. It, uh, well, I guess I can't say I've never been paid for any of it, but I've mostly not been paid for writing, but I've been doing it for years and years. Well, playing know? in bands, like, <laughs> it all went back into the gas tank. or Exactly. But yeah, you know, the studio, I mean, it's, I'm a long way from paying it off, but, you know, I do it because I love it. Right. No fool's going to make a studio in their house to make money. <laughs> You've learned now. Every, stu everybody knows, every studio in town. They did it because they love it. Not like, oh, I know we can make a ton of money. It's like you're driven to do it. Exactly. You got to do something. I don't feel like touring anymore. Yes. Because you don't make any money on that. But it's just, that's a lot of work. I like doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm around bands and music, you know, all week long. That's what I want. Yeah. It's just enjoyable. I I, I get it, you know. Um, but if I, he's freely still, if he if he still calls me and wants me to play his guitar, I'll get up on stage and play his guitar for him. If Ace, wait, are you still holding out? Because uh, no. remember, you didn't want to play like Ace Freely. I wanted to be you Ace wanted Ace. to be Ace Freely. After reading his biography, I'm not sure I want to be him. Yeah, I liked it to shake his hand once. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a good book. He was best friends with John Belushi. It was a, oh, it's an interesting read. I bet. 
He's lucky to be oh, alive about four or five times over. Oh, God. So he, he dodged that bullet, huh? Yeah. Well, the bullet didn't kill him. Oh, <laughs> okay. So it's not even a matter of getting out of the way. He just survived the shot. Exactly. Oh, God. Well, dude, I think we have come to the end. Excellent. I will say, is there anything else you'd like people to know? Any misconceptions you'd like to dispel? Or uh, if you anything we talked about that you're worried you want to make sure that people really understand what you meant? Uh, I don't uh, I'm not worried. Not worried about any of it. <laughs> I didn't use any names. Well, how do people contact you? Uh, Kyle at jamrecordingcompany.com. Kyle at jamrecordingcompany.com. Or if you go to jamrecordingcompany.com, all the contact info, phone number and everything's on there. What about Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm all on, that stuff? I'm on the Facebook. I'm on Instagram sometimes. Okay. So uh, all those things that we can we can put those up on the, the hit page. chasers are on everything, but I don't handle the hit chaser side. Okay, that's Ward. We'll still link it. Yeah, people gotta know. I'll send you the links to all of it. Perfect. And we got a SoundCloud page with like all almost all the licensing stuff we did. All the stuff's on there, so people can check it out. They can hear our country songs. Writing country songs is a bitch. <laughs> I'll bet it is. But the country songs are the get though. Oh, most really? of the country listings are for producers. And you think, oh, country, listen, it's easy. But then when you start getting into it, it's all about the story. And you get you get in your own way from writing a cheesy story. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just, it it's hard. <laughs> and the production is just, like, crazy. And we did a song. We had, I think we had 20 tracks of acoustic guitar playing the same part over and over just to make it sound country. Yeah. Because it's way, way overproduced. But as soon as you send it, the singer's not authentic, and the lyrics aren't quite right. Ah, the singer's not authentic. It, they, you can't slip it past them. Right, <laughs> that's too bad. But well, so we'll, I'll I'll link up that SoundCloud page too if you're cool with it. Oh yeah, so absolutely. Check it out. Well, dude, thank you for coming out here tonight. I appreciate it. No problem. It was a good scene, buddy. Oh, and that was How's a nice. That? that was a nice, good grip, man. That shake was good. I, f- I almost feel cheated. I didn't get the dead fish. I'll get. I'll get you back. Well, there you have it. Kyle Fletcher. Good dude that I know. I'm happy to talk to him. You know, uh, I'm just going to go right into some quick corrections. It's it, As usual, it's not really corrections, but um, we weren't sure about a couple of things. So let's at least correct the record on them so we know where we stand. Contingent did not play the Edge of Quarrel show that we talked about at the Paradox. It was actually the video release party for the movie. It was in May, and it was just the movie and Positively Negative and Rocky Votolato. And I actually threw the flyer for it up on the blog page for this episode, so you can go check that out if you'll want to. Um, the other thing, we were talking about the Jason Bateman sitcom, and Kyle was trying to remember what it was called. I didn't know. It Specifically, it was the, where they got the name The Dregs of Humanity. Um, I found the clip from the sitcom with The Dregs of Humanity show with the puppets that he was talking about. So that's up on the blog page also. And the show was called It's Your Move. That was not in my brain. I would have never remembered that in a million years. I did not know he had a show called It's Your Move, but he did. Jason Bateman, It's Your Move, 1984 or 5 or something. So, that's that. That that wraps up the episode. Um, It's episode 25, and I've got more coming. There's 
ton of people still on the list and the list is actually growing longer every day because we're just about into the time when I can start bringing on people from the early 2000s and that is going to expand my uh, possible guest base quite a bit. We're going to hold off for a little while, but yeah, there's going to be some people soon. My plea, as always, to you is to go to iTunes and rate the show. Give us five stars. Write a little review on there. Let people know about it. And if you're not going to do that, just share it on your Facebook or on your Twitter or whatever social media. Let people know, hey, I like this show. Seriously, like that, it just makes me feel great. So if you would do that for me, that would be so awesome. I would appreciate it. And then all the other usual stuff that I always say, you know, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Nosy Nobody. Go to the Nobody's Knows Facebook page, do all that stuff, and, you know, you can find out about stuff. Listen to my other podcast, The Token Asian, and uh, listen to the other podcasts that we have coming that we're not ready to announce yet. All right, more things coming in this year, 2016. It's going to be a good one. Rainfest just announced Stay Gold's playing. Like, yeah, I know, Indecision 108 and Burn and a whole bunch of other good bands are playing, but Stay Gold's playing Rainfest. It's going to be killer. This podcast is a product of the Nobody's Knows Podcast Network. Executive producers David R. Larson and K. Drake Streetman. Music for this episode provided by Polymorph from the record Artifacts, Demos, and Debris.